them we are playing Roll whenever I pay them we are winning Then you roll the dice, take a fly right back to the one from 99 Is it gonna go on like this forever? Are we gonna take that last step together? Going round and round and up and down Feels just like snakes and ladders Hello, welcome to the Quarter to Three Games podcast. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Mage Knight. Hi, I'm Tony Carnavali, and my game of the week is not King of New York. Mm. Hi, my name is Bruce Garrick, and my game of the week is not Onirim. <laughs> we have all chosen board games. Wow, how about that? So... Those of you listening, some of you might be going, oh, God, it's a board gaming podcast. I'm turning it off. That's not my bag. I'm going to wait till they come back and do something about video games. Hold on a second before you go. Wait, no. Uh, uh, come back. Here's the deal. This podcast is for you. We are going to be talking about, no offense intended, but board games for dummies and their dummy friends. <laughs> and we're not calling you dummies. This is just an affectionate way of saying, hey, you don't play board games. You may not know much about them. We're here to tell you about them. Uh, me and Tony and Bruce are all, I would say, inveterate board gamers. Some of us have been doing it longer than others. I think Bruce played his first board game when he was two. <laughs> uh, so what we want to do is talk to you about, hey, what are board games? What's a good way to get started with them? Uh, and what are some specific recommendations we can make for you? Uh, so Bruce, as the guy who's been at this longest... Why don't you give us a little thumbnail sketch of what's the deal with this whole entertainment medium? Uh, give us the brief history of it, maybe. So uh, my understanding is that it's been pretty constant. I mean, board games are these things that are put on a table, and then you roll a die to see how far you move. And then mm-hmm. you land on a box that tells you what to do, and then you just keep on going until you get to the end. Like Park Place, for instance. Yeah, sure. Or, uh, you know, the... Um, you know, the chute that takes you down the ladder or something like that. Or, sure, right, yeah, right, right. So, <clears throat> yeah, that's that's. Uh, I think that's what most people think that board games are, right? Or, I mean, most people might think that that's how they still are. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think that they are anymore. At least there are plenty of that aren't. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that is, is really interesting about board games because the stuff that you all learned as kids – that are listening to this podcast, uh, that doesn't really that doesn't really hold up anymore. I think uh, there's a lot of um, things that have changed, and the way that we look at board games has changed, and the way we play, and how you know how much thinking and how much interaction there is. Those have all sort of developed and evolved. And uh, interestingly enough, I think it all happened because of some Europeans. Isn't it weird how a lot of culture comes from Europe? Don't you think? <laughs> Wait a minute. Europeans invented board games? Well, they invented good board games, I think. <laughs> well, here's my thing, and I don't know if you agree with me, Bruce, and I say this half facetiously, but I kind of believe it. I don't think anybody knew how to make good board games until about maybe 2008. Any time I, I hear someone recommend a board game that comes from before 2008, I'm like, no, that can't be very good. Back then, they didn't really know how to make good games. And I was playing some of them back then. Mm -hmm. But I kind of feel like what makes board games cool and special and unique and recommendable Mm -hmm. these days is almost entirely stuff that's happened in the last 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. Now, Tony, as as someone who uh, you and I uh, were – we've played board games together a lot. Um, You are on 
what I would call my board gaming dream team. Oh, I love that. Where whenever, yeah, whenever you would show up for a board gaming night, I would be like, yes, sweet. There's another guy here <laughs> who thinks like me. He can handle anything as hardcore <laughs> as me. He has my sort of same philosophical approach. So obviously, Tony, you agree with me. There were no good board games up to 10 years ago, right? Tom, I have a surprise for you. Yes. I actually disagree with you, uh, and I think there have been many board games prior. First of all, I think the, you're choosing 2008, I think, as an intentional troll, because I think you know that there are some great board games from, say, 2006. I mean, you have to know that, right? Okay, well, I'll say 10 years. We'll, we'll call it 10 years. Okay. So th- there aren't any from 2005. How about that? Oh, there's definitely some from 2005. But, Tom, there's even good board games from 1977. For instance, oh, a game that... I believe you enjoy that I've brought over to your house on multiple occasions called Cosmic Encounter. Now, the thing is, that looks like an awfully fresh box. It doesn't look like something that's from 1977, though. That's right. That's because Fantasy Flight, the publisher, has updated it uh, and continues to publish it. But the core gameplay is uh, pretty much exactly the same as it was in 1977. And the reason that game is still in print is precisely because it is so highly playable. It's such a, an elegant, simple design um, that has a high level of player interaction and uh, relatively short turns, and every player is involved every turn. A lot of the things that you might associate with the modern so-called Euro game trend were present in Cosmic Encounter in 1977. So what you guys are saying is that all along... Board games haven't just been this crappy monopoly model. That's right. Uh, I think what's I think what's changed it has been uh, people have found new ways to communicate about board games, mainly on the internet. And the evolution of board games is definitely uh, sped up. And uh, there's a lot more good games now, for instance, than there were in '77. That's for sure, there's probably a hundred times more good games now than there were in '77. But there's a hundred times more good everything now, really, than 1977. I mean, look at television shows. What what TV was on in 1977? Mostly bullshit. Uh, but there was an occasional good show. They, it's not that they didn't know how to make good TV in 1977. It's just that there wasn't that much of it. And I think uh, technology. Uh, all the different channels that we have today, both on television and the different like new media, internet ways of watching television, uh, and the fact that the internet lets people communicate about television uh, more readily has uh, fostered kind of the development of that medium, just as well, the internet has fostered the development of board games. Tony, as I mean, I think you're like what twenty four. Like, you're the, you're, you're the kid on the podcast. You're, you're a little too young to know things that Bruce and I know. Um, I think the. the the flaw in your model is, like, the 70s were, were a golden era of cinema, for instance, that we will unfortunately probably never recapture. But, but something that's – so I, I get what you're, what you're saying, but the way I would put it is that the longer that board games have been around and people like us, you know, you, me, and Bruce, who have grown up playing board games, we have seen them and we have applied – not us, but people our age who make board games – have applied new ideas and they've tried new things and – They've taken old models and kind of improved them and applied to them things you mentioned with Cosmic Encounter, like shorter turns, everybody constantly being involved, uh, elegant rules. Um, We've learned, as this generation and others grow up with board games, how to improve them and and more carefully engineer the experience of them. Uh, 
So, so I, I do think that's what's going on. But that is, I do have that prejudice. When I look at older games, I think, well, back then, they made things super complicated. They didn't care if one player had to wait 30 minutes to take his turn. Um, so you're, you're right. Certain things certainly endure. Cosmic Encounter is one of them. I can think of a few more. Uh, but the more we go, the more people realize, yeah, that didn't work so much back then. Yeah, I think, uh, I think also, though, I want to point out that I think there's just a lot more. I mean, there are, I don't think there are. There are a lot more games out right now, and there are plenty of terrible games. I mean, yeah. there are so many games that are so bad, but there are so many games released, and there are so many good designers working that I think that you sort of – the Internet, as Tony has pointed out, sort of allows you to sample the cream of the crop because you very quickly know which games are good and which games you don't want to touch. And uh, so that sort of lets you kind of, you know, bathe in the, you know, in the in the cream or something like right. that. Right, and, and that's that's why we want to talk to you here is we want to we want to give you this cream if we want to fill up a tub of it for you oh, so that you don't have to bathe in the dross and the bad stuff. Uh, because I think that's something like a new board gamer who picks up a copy of, and this is my own baggage here, but for instance, there's a very popular game called Pandemic mm-hmm. uh, that I personally hate, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of times. Somebody is like, yeah, let me try this board gaming thing. They'll pick up something that I feel has a lot of flaws, Mm -hmm. and those flaws will then color how they feel about the entertainment, about the medium as a whole. Mm -hmm. So what me and Bruce and Tony want to do is talk to you about what things you should maybe avoid, what things may or may not work as you're getting into this new medium. Uh, Yeah, so we want to give you that tub full of the cream of the crop and and let you wallow in that. before we move on, though, from the evolution of board games, Bruce, I want you to, to talk briefly about, um, to me, a lot of old board games, like tabletop experiences, are crazy, intricate war games with little chits um, mm-hmm. that have little numbers on them, and you have to look up stuff on a combat results table. Uh, you were talking to a designer at one point who mentioned the importance of Magic the Gathering, uh, which is a popular card collecting game that that had on board game design. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely, yes. I talked to Mark Herman, who has been designing games for maybe four years, and who I talked to on the uh, Designer Notes podcast that uh, Soren Johnson uh, hosts. And, and and Mark Herman isn't necessarily a, a name that new board gamers need to look out no. for. But Bruce, you, Mark had a, well, an, well, a maybe. great... Well, maybe. Go ahead, yes. Well, you, you know, we'll get to that in a minute. Maybe maybe you would recommend something. But Mark had a great point about an important step in the evolution of board games that, Bruce, I want you to, to mention for folks. So the uh, the board gaming hobby, I think that people will notice. I, I mean, everything, first of all, as Tony said, everything is kind of better now than it used to be. Uh, and that includes paper. Somehow trees are just making better paper than the old <laughs> trees did. I'm not sure how that works, but uh, I'm not a uh, I'm not a arborist. It's probably GMOs, Bruce. Yeah, I, GMOs. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very much on board with that uh, explanation. So, you know, the the um, just the physical quality of things that we get now, like the games that you'll see, are much, much higher than the physical quality of games you might remember from the 70s. But, you know, the reason for that is that back then, making stuff physically was expensive. It was very expensive. And, you know, you had printing presses where little, you know, monks had to, like, chisel out, like, little letters and on little stone things and put them into whatever and put them in ink and, you know, whatever, and the Pope might shut them down. So <laughs> so the, the problem was that uh, making games with a whole bunch of different components 
was very expensive, and so that discouraged people from using different mechanics. For example, cards. You know, you can have a card game, but if you're going to make a card game with counters and a board and dice, and oh, now you have to use, there's a lot of uh, expenditure that has to be uh, put into that. It's going to cost a lot of money. It's probably not going to sell. So interestingly enough, a very pure card game came out uh, in the early 90s. Uh, you guys may have heard of it. Uh, I think, Tom, you mentioned it. I think you mispronounced it. It's called Magic the Gathering. Um, what did I say? What are you talking about? <laughs> I, you'll have to go back on the tape. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, so Magic the Gathering is designed by Richard Garfield, and it obviously, you know, everybody in the world ended up playing Magic the Gathering at some point or probably anybody listening to this podcast, and it became so popular uh, that the company that was printing the cards for it actually, is, was, I think it was a, he said it was a Belgian company. I meant to look it up, but I didn't. Um, the Belgian company decided that they were going to, to move a full production factory of cards to the United States just so that they could keep the Wizards of the Coast uh, contract, so that they could continue to make cards for Wizards of the Coast for Magic the Gathering. Well, that, of course, all of a sudden dropped card production prices way down because you're no longer ordering. Because the cards, you know, I don't know if you guys played in the past, but or listeners have played. There was a game that I used to play called Stratomatic Baseball. And, uh, and there were some other card games where you had to sort of like rip these cards out of, uh, you know, they were, it was, it was almost like ripping things. You know, you get those things in like a cereal box and you have to rip out the, you know, playing card. Uh, it's like perforated. Yeah, like perforated, exactly. You're perforated. Yeah, perforated. And, uh, I mean, it was just really junky looking. And Yeah, try, try shuffling yeah, exactly, one of those. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So the, um, the company that was making these Magic the Gathering cards was also a company that made professional, you know, poker and bridge cards. And, um, and so once they moved the factory to the United States, card production became much cheaper. And Mark Herman said that when that became so cheap because of Magic the Gathering, game uh, designers were able to start using cards in games as a mechanic and not having to exclude other things. So, you know, uh, one of the things that um, war games started doing was using a lot of these mechanics, and Mark Herman happens to be a uh, V designer who really pioneered this kind of idea of card-driven war games where you have not only a bunch of hexes and little fiddly chits, but a bunch of little fiddly cards. But they're very high quality and very shuffleable and everything like that. So, um, you know, if you next time you go and uh, curse the kids at the game store for uh, buying all those magic cards... <laughs> they uh, they really uh, help propel core uh, game design. Now, now let's talk some about the the different mechanics that you find in board games because a lot of people who might not know board games, Bruce, you mentioned the term uh, card driven gameplay. They're like, well, what does that mean? Uh, let's unpack for you guys some of the different types of games that are out there. So, Bruce, explain briefly what is a card what does card driven gameplay mean? So, the idea of card driven gameplay is really a sort of a war game uh, war game concept, but it's been applied to some kind of lighter games uh, that we'll mention. Um, but the idea is that you have a board, but then you have events that are being driven by a card, either a hand that you hold or a series of uh, deck that's being uh, being revealed. And what you can do with that deck is, you know, in a war game sense, you can take uh, events that maybe happen once or that you would need a special rule for and you just put it on the on the deck or on the you know on a certain card and then you can play the card or maybe it's revealed by the players as you know they're drawing cards from a deck and the rules can be on that card you implement those rules and then they go away or they have multiple uses so you can play the card as an event or you can play the card for some uh you know uh, numeric value that's also printed on the card and those things are are separate 
Um, so you have to make a choice. So it introduces all these interesting options and all ways of bringing uh, flavor and theme into a game without having to, uh, you know, expand the rulebook for another, you know, 20 pages. Now, I, I tend to think of card-driven gameplay as something rel- not maybe advanced, but intermediate. Like, I don't necessarily know if there are any good beginner games with card-driven gameplay, but there are certainly yeah, plenty I know of one. good... Oh, yeah, what, like, what would you call out as saying a good introductory card-driven gameplay board game? I would say that you could all... You, that if you... Uh, you could play uh, A Few Acres of Snow as a an introductory card-driven... Ooh... Ooh, really? I don't know. T- mm. T- Tony, how do you feel about that? Because you I know would that game. Say, I would also caution against playing A Few Acres of Snow as an intro game. So so why? Bruce, uh, real quick, why would you say that that might be a good intro? And then, Tony, I want to hear why you would maybe caution against it. Well, I think that the if the, the game concepts are very simple. Uh, and the it's not the it's not the rules at all. Uh, it's a, it's the interplay of the different uh, of the different cards that I think is what's giving you guys pause. Uh, it's a very complex system to sort of wrap your head around the strategy, but the actual playing of the game I don't think is very complicated. Okay, so Tony, then what what are your reservations about maybe recommending that as a as an intro game? I would agree that the playing of the game is is not particularly complicated. Um, but I have a few reservations about using it as an intro game. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is that A Few Acres of Snow, like many so-called deck-building games, um, requires that you really grasp the concept of thinning out your deck and mm-hmm. cutting down your deck to the barest essentials of the best cards that you need to suit your particular strategy. Now, there are... In most deck building games, there are a number of ways, a number of strategies that you can apply and a number of different kinds of decks and some require less thinning than others. Um, a few acres of snow, another problem with it is that I find that on each side, and it is a historical war game uh, simulating a war between, God, what war even is it? I don't even know my history well enough. French and Indian the, uh, War. The French and yes. Indian War. And... Uh, it's so you if whichever side you're on, there are definitely um, very specific strategies that I think are most useful. And the game is designed that way. I don't think it's a flaw. But until you really there, there's 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 a bit of a learning curve. Not that any game doesn't have a learning curve. Um, but for me, I think a few acres of snow seems like a bit of a steep learning curve to introduce to somebody. To sort of pick up on what you're saying, Tony, I think the idea is there are certain strategies baked into the gameplay, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's something that until you learn it, you're going to kind of be spinning your wheels. Uh, I do agree with Bruce, though, in that as far as card-driven gameplay, it is one of the best examples, and it's a great way to pick up that dynamic. Um, but there's a lot of hidden depth. It's a, it's a fellow named Martin Wallace, who I, I love this guy as a designer. Uh, just as like certain movie buffs might follow certain directors, I feel that way about certain board game designers. And Martin Wallace would be my basically my Cohen brothers. Uh, I, I love what that guy does. Uh, so that's I think one of one of his great designs. It might have some obstacles for a new player, and I would also say one of the obstacles, Bruce. I hate to tell you this, but who's going to want to? Who is going to be able to convince his or her buddy to play a game about the French and Indian War? Like that, that, it was originally going to be a science fiction setting, mm-hmm. 
But Martin Wallace and whoever he was working with, they changed it over to the French and Indian War, and they did a great job expressing this. But come on, that's boring, Bruce. Well, they decided to no. change it to something more popular, right, and more relevant. Right. I mean, <laughs> something that, that would sell. Right. right. <laughs> well, I mean, who needs spaceships? I mean, spaceships aren't real, but, I mean, French and Indians are, so you're all set. <laughs> yeah, and nobody get, nobody goes to movies about spaceships. Like, no, nobody cares no, about no, that no. stuff these days. But so, so, Tony, you mentioned something uh, that I think this gets more to a great way to introduce people to board games. Um these games don't even have a board. Tony, tell us what deck building games mm-hmm. are. Um, well, some of them do have a few acres of snow, I would say, as a deck building. Oh, right, right, right. It has a board. But um, deck building games are games in which. So, okay, so Magic the Gathering uh, is a game in which you build a deck outside of the game. In other words, before you sit down with your friend and play Magic the Gathering, you have to go to a game store or a convention or something and buy all these decks of cards, and maybe you'll get good ones, maybe you'll get bad ones, or maybe you'll go to a dealer that has that is selling instead of packs of cards maybe they're selling already opened cards and you they're all priced depending on their rarity and how good they are and so you go out and you hunt down these cards and you assemble your deck and then you're ready to play a game and then the game begins that's an entirely separate phase from what you just did did, uh, rounding up all these cards well that is not a deck building game even though uh, you have to build a deck because the deck building takes place before the game. A deck building game is a game in which deck building is part of the game itself. So typically a deck building game will come as a, a box filled with cards and usually it's every card that you're ever going to need to play is in that box. Uh, there's some exceptions to that. Of course, some games have expansions and etc. But uh, then you uh, set up the game and the, the in the process of playing the game, you are building a deck simul- usually simultaneously with trying to win. And uh, there's in many of these games, there's sort of a tipping point as to when exactly you make a transition from mostly building your deck and somewhat trying to win. Uh, then you make a transition eventually over to your deck is pretty much the way you want it. Now you're going in for the kill. Um, and that's a learning curve with those games as well. And in here, by the way, Tony, is one reason that I would take exception with a popularly popularly recommended deck building game. Uh, a lot of people hold up, and this is, I think, if not the first deck building game, one of the first deck building games, a game called Dominion. Mm-hmm. Um, Dominion is very popular, and that little strategy Tony mentioned about you build up your deck, and then at one point you transition to victory points into a new a new gamer that might sound like, what? What am I, what am I doing? Because there's nothing in the rules about that. Right. That's something you kind of have to learn. It's, in a way, a kind of a baked-in strategy. Uh, rather than starting with Dominion, which is hugely popular, which has a lot of expansions, it could be a little daunting to sort of sit down and figure out, how do I learn, you know, what do I buy to play this Dominion game? Uh, I would steer people away from Dominion and recommend another deck-building game that I feel is more suitable for new players called Ascension. Mm-hmm. Um, because Ascension, you're always getting cards that give you victory points. There's not this either-or. In Dominion, you, you basically, it's not quite this simple, but you basically take a card that's helpful to you or, during the gameplay, or you take a card that gives you points at the end of the game. They're kind of two separate things, and you have to make a tough decision between the two. Uh, Ascension doesn't do that. Every card, in a way, is useful. Every card helps you win the game at the end, to a certain degree. Uh, I love the unique 
uh, Dominion is kind of this generic, hey, medieval village and knights and a tavern and whatever. Uh, Ascension has really cool artwork and this this unique kind of environment that it creates with these different factions. Um, so as far as deck builders go, uh, I think the most popular one isn't the one I would personally recommend. And, and I would suggest people try one called Ascension. Uh, can you guys, does any of you guys disagree with that? Or can you guys think of better early deck builders to, for early board gamers? I uh, have called, kind of fallen out of love with most deck builders as a genre, I, but I, mm-hmm. if, if you're going to play one with a new gamer, I absolutely can get behind Ascension 100%. I think it's great. Yeah, I think Ascension. I mean, Ascension does have uh, a bunch of uh, expansions, right? But uh, it, That is true. That is true, right. But they are kind of like if you just buy Ascension without, oh, you know what? Even the core game does have like Ascension colon, the something, something of the something. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you, like Dominion, you might have, That's kind of the deal with almost any popular game, right. though, is you're going to have to figure out what expansions, if any, do, do you need. Right. Um, so let's let's talk about – so deck building is, is one term you might hear. Uh, what would you call Monopoly? Because that, that's a terrible game. Are there games like Monopoly that are good? Wow. Uh, I think people would refer to that as maybe a roll-and-move game. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. In fact, for there instance, are... go on. Sorry. Here's a, 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 another one that people might know, and certainly that I'd know, and this is from before they knew how to make go- good games, mm-hmm. and it's a classic example. Uh, Talisman. Yes. Sure. That that's not. A, I wouldn't call that a good game. I could. I would call that a right. great game if you're so drunk that you can't really make <laughs> any decisions. Then that would be a, a great game to play. Yeah. Then you can fall under that category. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. R- roll and move is a genre. Uh, I kind of feel. Uh, like it's uh, as a gameplay mechanic, we're done with that. I don't think roll and move. Uh, no game. There's no excuse to have a roll and move game around anymore. Uh, Do you guys agree or disagree? I actually disagree. There's, okay. there's. Uh, I can name at least one that I really, really enjoy. I don't even know if it's still in print. Uh, it is a German game in English. It's called That's Life. That's what the English translation, or the. It's not a translation, but that's what the English name of it is mm-hmm. in German I think it's called Verflixt which I believe roughly translates to fucked <laughs> um, and the gist of this game is um the board is a essentially just a straight line it's a spiral but functionally it's just a two-dimensional line um and everybody every player has a few tokens and the board which is a spiral is comprised of little tiles and each little tile has a positive number on it or a negative number on it uh, or another kind of symbol and basically you roll and you move one of your pieces and if you move a piece that is the only piece on the tile that it's on you take the tile and you now have that tile and that tile is either a positive number of points or a negative number of points or a tile that flips uh, negative to a positive So and remember, you you don't just have one piece. You have I think four for each player has four tokens. <clears throat> so what it becomes is this sort of game of chicken. Like who's going to be the last one to move off these pieces? You have to eventually uh, move all your move all your your tokens off of the pieces that you, that uh, they're on. Um, and it, it there is actually a lot of strategy to it, and it's quite straightforward and i play it all the time with uh, new gamers or my family or people who aren't super into board games 
You know, it kind of sounds like you've described backgammon to me. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Sounds... You know, I've never really gotten into backgammon. I don't know. I don't know how to play it, so maybe I have. Because yeah. backgammon, by the way, is another roll and move. I mean, I think in a way that's kind of uh, one of that's right up there with Monopoly, but it's endured longer. Yeah, and it uh, does have that same, you know, uh, game of chicken where you have to because you have protected right. what they're called points, right? right? And you have to. It's a very good point, Tommy, that you, that you made there. It's a, you have to sort of decide when you're going to start taking these guys off their protected points and, and, and heading for the for the finish. So uh, yeah, I think maybe somebody's just uh, taken backgammon and uh, made a uh, complicated German word out of it. <laughs> well, Bruce, do you do you feel like uh, do you think that there are any good? Uh, so Tony mentioned this one, which I don't know, which some people might like. Do you can you think of any good roll and move games? I mean, besides Parcheesi and Sorry. Oh God! See exactly that's what yeah, I think. Yeah, I can't think. I can't, I mean, no, I really honestly can't think of any. I think that the the idea of the die as something that is going to move you along some. You know, you roll a die, and that's where you know how far you advance along a track. I mean, that's. That's really sort of, uh, you know, that's when they decide, you know, they, they were like, okay, uh, you know, we're going to have, uh, you know, a, a system of government. We're just going to set up one guy, and then all of his kids get to rule us as well, and whatever he says goes. And if he wants to cut off our heads, then we just have to kind of go along with it. So, I mean, that was a, I mean, that was a legitimate way of having a government at that time. But then I think as they kind of moved along, they thought, okay, well, maybe, you know, we shouldn't let people cut off our heads just because they got born to do that. And I think in the same way, we shouldn't let dice move us along a track just because that's what somebody did some back uh, back time. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so the roll and move has been overthrown by constitutional monarchy. I think so, basically. yes. yes yeah, we've yeah. advanced that. Um, uh, we've, we've researched that tech. But so, uh, however, let's then talk about dice because dice, of course, aren't entirely useless. Right. There are some great, cool things yep. that are done yep. with with dice. Yep. Bruce, give us one example of um, what, and and let's kind of talk about gameplay mechanics. Where's a gameplay mechanic that uses dice that isn't roll and move? that you and I might think is terrible, but Tony can think of a good example of. Uh, what's another th- cool thing that we can do with dice that's not roll and move? Well, so dice can be actually, you know, dice can be tokens. Uh, dice can be sort of enablers of using a certain, um, you know, ability. I mean, one of these things that uh, that games have developed is this idea that, you know, as you give people... Uh, you know, as you try to have games where everybody is participating, you give people different things that they can do during a turn. And then, you know, if you do something during a turn, then another person can't do that specific thing, but maybe they can do another thing. And it's sort of, you know, you're always paying attention to who chose doing, you know, to do what the, the idea of roles. I mean, it's not role playing uh, because you don't have to, you know, talk to the barkeep, but you it is kind of role playing <laughs> in the sense that, uh, you know, you have to um, you, you really have to follow certain rules based on the, 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 the choice that you've made. And, um, and dice can actually enable you to do certain things, and, and rolling the dice uh, is a perfectly legitimate mechanic. And uh, one game, I think, Tom, that you introduced me to that uh, I wouldn't have played otherwise uh, was, is called uh, Voyages of Marco Polo. And that game, although you know, that's also probably on the, uh, a little bit on the, um, maybe it's the... Uh, advanced but it's a little bit complicated but uh, once again you know the actual uh, mechanics are not that difficult the the idea that when you roll these dice you can use them to you know you can uh, buy goods you can use them to move your character uh, or you know your your little token along and it, you, you can roll that is a sort of a roll and move uh, because the the number that you put 
uh, on the, the, the number of pips on the die does influence uh, how far you can move. You can um, you can buy contracts. You can um, you can get money for those dice and sort of you, you use your but you have a fixed number of dice and those dice are things which you have to manage. You know, I, I rolled three sixes. Well, you know, do I want to use two of those sixes for this other thing or do I want to save them all, all three because the way that you um, the way that you use those dice might be in combination. So, um, you know, people have gotten very, very uh, inventive in the way that they use uh, that they use dice and, um, you know, they have multiple functions. One of the things that I think, like, like Voyage, when I talk about, hey, there were no good games 10 years ago, in the last 10 years, people have learned how to build on these concepts and ideas and make better games. Uh, to me, Voyage as a Marco Polo is this great example of a game that has benefited from years of different mechanics and putting them together in different clever ways to make a non-sucky game. Like, Voyage to Marco Polo is, is I, one of my top ten favorite games, and I think it's a brilliant design. Um, and if it weren't for kind of the intricacy of some of the gameplay and maybe the learning curve, I wouldn't hesitate to mention it, to, to recommend it to a new player. Right. Well, uh, I, would, I, would, I would point out, though, you know, that, that it depends on the... On the, on the um Sort of the mindset of the new player, right? Because I think that right. if you if you have a player, and we should talk, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later. You know, what kind of player are you? But if you're a player who isn't so worried about you know losing, you know, if you if somebody shows you a new game, you have to be able to win that game uh, right away. Mm, if you're mm. if you're interested in just sitting down and and playing a game and and seeing how it all works, that's another game where the concepts aren't so complicated. So you might say, oh gosh, you know. I didn't do this one thing. I should have been doing more of this other thing. And as, if you're if you're willing to sort of, you know, roll with it and just say, oh, you know, because if you're playing with other people who aren't very experienced, you're all going to make mistakes. Um, but it, that might be an interesting way in which you get to sort of, uh, uh, you know, build up your uh, understanding of the game over multiple plays and really see yourself doing better. Mm-hmm. So Voyages of Marco Polo also could arguably be described as a worker placement yes, game. Yes, could. T-Zone, explain what – I'm sorry, Tony, I just – I was going to not use your nickname because nobody's going to know what I'm talking about, and I let it slip. Tony, uh, explain to us what worker placement is and why it is a, less, a lesser gameplay mechanic. <laughs> why it's a lesser gameplay mechanic? I'm, I'm not fond of worker placement. Uh, Interesting. So I, I'm a little prejudiced against it. So explain it, and then maybe I'll say why I okay. don't like it. So worker placement games, uh, typically each player is allotted a number of tokens, which represent workers commonly, and there will be a central board or a board in front of each player that uh, has indicated on it visually different actions that you can take. So uh, to go back to the example of Monopoly, the only action you can take in that game, which is not a worker placement game, is to roll a die, move your token, and then either draw a card or choose to, to purchase something or not purchase it. But basically, you're not choosing uh, what action to take. It's it's kind of dictated to you. In a worker placement game, you have a finite number of actions that you can choose to take. You select a worker token. You place it on the action, thereby generally co- covering it up either for yourself or for yourself and everyone else. So no one can select that uh, action again or a finite number of additional people can until the end of that round or something. And um, generally, that's how it goes. Agricola, I think, is, in many people's minds, the prototypical uh, example. Certainly not the first, but kind of like a a platonic ideal of a worker placement game, which I'm sure Tom believes has been outmoded. 
I actually do. So uh, the, one of the earlier ones is uh, – I think this predates Agricola. There's one called Stone Age, which is also pretty uh, – I don't know that it's popular, but isn't that from before Agricola? Yeah, it I is, don't know. But, uh, well, no, 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 no. Actually, no. I don't think Stone Age is before Agricola. Calus is before Agricola, though. Wouldn't you? Calus. Oh, right, right, right. Calus is, is one probably, of the first. Uh, I think. Yeah. I think, uh, so my problem with worker placement. Um, one of the important things you want to look for when you are considering a board game for people who don't normally play board games is a degree of interactivity. Um, you know, if, if me and Bruce and Tony are sitting around. I don't just want to have my head down doing my own thing when it's my turn. I want to really have to carefully consider what Bruce and Tony are doing. I want to do things directly to them. I want them to do things directly to me. Um, Worker placement, the mode of interaction with other players, I would describe as simply cock blocking. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and I, I think there are far better ways for us to interact than to just directly frustrate one another. And I think that's the gameplay that worker placement builds on the dynamics of frustration, of being unable to do something. And Agricola, brutal in that regard. I think Agricola, cute, charming, uh, theming with you're raising a family on a farm, and it seems very warm and welcoming. Uh, Agricola is a very cruel game. Uh, and I think it's a, another one that people will commonly introduce, uh, recommend to new players, and I think it's a terrible idea. Uh, so uh, uh, Agricola ver- uh, is worker placement, but uh, yeah, don't play Agricola. And as a matter of fact, I can't think of many worker placement games that I would recommend for a new player. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, like can you guys think of a good alternative to Agricola? That and, and actually, do you guys agree with me on this idea that there, the dynamics of frustration with worker placement? Well, I'll answer I first agree. because so I know sorry. Tony's because yep. uh, so, t- Tony's going to probably disagree with you. So I can just <laughs> I say that I I uh, I agree with you in the same in the sense that you know games games where you're trying to frustrate somebody uh, can appeal to a certain type of person. But I found that they're find that they're much there's a much larger segment of society that gets really pissed off. There was a um, a game in the old days uh, that I, I'm sure nobody plays anymore called Ticket to Ride. And um, oh, people play it. Yeah, I mean that's another one that people commonly recommend to right, new players. Right. right. Well, so so Ticket to Ride is actually an excellent game if you don't play it the way it's supposed to be played. Uh, it's it's a, <laughs> the game. The game is. I mean, it's supposed to be played as a nice game. You play with your kids. You know, you, you pull a card. You have this many cards. You run. You know, you take this route, and then everybody tries to complete the route. The way that you're that you can play it, and I think it's actually I really enjoy playing it this way is that what you do is you draw cards and you have to try to guess what route somebody has based on the cards they draw. And as soon as they put some some roots down, you go and try to block them. You just say, okay, boom, 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 boom. And the reason that that works is that if you hold a card that you don't finish the, the route for, you lose points. So it's basically this sort of negative Nancy kind of uh, gameplay. Yeah. And it, it's it's very effective. I mean, if you know how to play the game, then you can get a very good sense. And I think, Tom, you and I actually played a couple times with, with that sort of thing uh, going where I had just played the heck out of the game from uh, playing it online. And then we played a few times, and I could tell what you were doing simply because I'd played the game so many times. I knew exactly, you know, okay, if you're p- picking a certain color, then you're picking a lot of that. You're probably going this certain place. I can just block you, and you're done. And um, And people get really angry when you do that. And uh, and my answer was always, well, you know, it, it's clear to me what you're doing, and I'm just going to use the game rules to frustrate you. But, you know, if that's the case, then 
there are probably a lot of people that aren't going to want to play that game. And I think it would probably lead to a lot of um, unhappiness around the uh, beginner game uh, uh, kitchen table. I think a lot of folks like us who are super acquainted with lots of different board games are, are kind of, maybe not down on Ticket to Ride, but I think a lot of people who just casually, superficially look at what Ticket to Ride is think, oh yeah, that's perfect. Um, but like you're describing, Bruce, it really is, if you know all the cards, you're playing a completely different kind of game, right. and it is based on this dynamic of frustration. Uh, now that could be said Tony for many games. If one, player, if, if one player knows uh, one game inside and out, uh, and, right. and the player they're playing against does not, I, I think that can ruin a lot of games. But I 100% agree that Ticket to Ride is bullshit under any circumstances. <laughs> I'm glad, yeah, don't mince words. And Tony, are you kind of uh, also with me in terms of what worker placement, uh, how worker placement yeah, is? Yeah, I think for the most part, yes. Um, yeah. I, uh, we're going to... Go on. Oh, we're we're going to mention at the end, uh, later in the podcast, specific games we would recommend. And I actually can think of two worker placement games that I would recommend to new players. So I wouldn't write off the mechanic entirely, but it's one I would recommend people be wary of. And don't fall for this idea that Agricola and Ticket to Ride are perfect for new gamers. Uh, oh, they're not. Say. They're definitely not. Now, are, yeah, are those games on your, on, your, on your top three or, or whatever, Tom? Because I, I know one of them that I like. No, we're going to, so we're also at the end of the podcast, each going to pick three Desert Island games we would bring mm. to a Desert Island if we were stranded with non-gamers. Mm. Uh, and no, good Lord, no. Ticket oh. to Ride, uh, Agricola, not on that list. But no, no, uh, I'm saying that if you thought of good worker placement games, do you have any good worker placement games on your, on your Desert oh, Island no. games? Okay, no, well then I will, not. then yeah. how about Carson City? That is yeah. definitely the one that I would think of, and I know it's one of Tony's favorite games of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh so, Tony, why is Carson City a worker placement game? Why is that uh, an acceptable recommend for new oh, players? Carson City, I, hadn't, I haven't thought of that game in a long time. I want to play it now. Just mentioning it makes me want to play it. Carson <laughs> City is wonderful. Um, first of all, the big flaw of worker placement games that Tom mentioned, that you, your primary and often only mode of interacting with people is cock-blocking, uh, which I absolutely agree with, is not the case in uh, Carson City. There's, there is cock blocking, don't get me wrong, uh, but there's a lot of other ways to interact with people and, uh, and take them on. Um, Carson City is a game about building uh, different kinds of buildings in the Old West and profiting off of them in various ways and stealing profits from your opponents. Um, and... Gosh, I'm trying now. I'm just trying to. Th- there's so many different ways to win. I think that's one reason I like it so much. There's there's a bunch of different ways to get money. Uh, there's um, d- each turn you select a character role that gives you a special power, and the roles are so different and so powerful uh, in their own way that you find yourself wishing you could take multiple roles a turn uh, or selecting a different role every turn and and trying to exploit it to the fullest um i love everything down to the art and the design of the tokens that are the little the, they're often called meeples in games where a little wooden uh character token in this game they look like little little cowboys um mm-hmm. so much about carson city just really works so wonderfully we, we haven't talked much about this but one of the things that a lot of people talk about when they talk about any games, actually, is the difference between the gameplay mechanics, uh, you know, the rules of what you do and how you do it, and the theme. 
you know, what is this about cowboys? Is this about orcs? Is this about spaceships? Um, Carson City does a great job of exploiting this idea of, of a Western theme, which is kind of rare. Like, there aren't a lot of board games that are about Westerns. Um, so that's one of the things I really like about Carson City is how evocative it is. And the way it does this is a good worker placement game, or one that I feel uh, mitigates the inherent frustration of worker placement games, moves the action to some other realm or, or gameplay dynamic. Uh, Carson City has worker placement, but it's mainly about an empty board where you place buildings that have relationships to each other. It's basically a city builder that has worker placement bolted onto the side. Um, and furthermore, you can like have gunfights with each other, so you're not always entirely blocked. You have ways to, to fight directly with people. If Bruce does something I don't like, I can have a shootout with him. Um, so Carson City, as well as having a really cool theme, it's not merely worker placement. It's a city builder. Uh, and this is one I definitely wouldn't recommend to someone, but there's a great worker placement game called Dominant Species. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, very thematic, this idea of evolving different species over multiple generations. Um, it takes worker placement and it sort of sidelines it next to a brutally difficult, intricate territory control game on a map. Um, so the best worker placement isn't just worker placement. It's worker placement plus something else. Um, we mentioned dice. There's a worker placement game called Alien Frontiers, uh, which is based on rolling dice, and the dice you get determine what kinds of actions you can do on a worker placement map. Um, another one I would I would kind of recommend. This is a fairly new one. Uh, there's a kind of it, it's think of this as actually worker deplacement. Um, there are games that Tony and I like called. There's a game called Troyes which Tony and I like, and there's a new game that just came out called Grand Austria Hotel. Hmm. And in those games, you roll dice, and then you pull from a pool of dice to do different actions. So rather than frustrating someone by cock-blocking them, you're competing for limited resources. Like, we might have, you know, we throw the dice, and there's sixes that everybody wants, and there's a couple of fives, and then some crappy twos, and the game is about who's going to get to them first. Uh, and I think there's a very important psychological difference between blocking someone and taking something that they wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a game called Troyes and this new game called Grand Austria Hotel, I think are good inverse examples of cock blocking uh, and more like, hey, I wanted that and you took it. Now I have a grudge against you. Uh, and it's not so much you stopped me from doing something, it's you did something that I wanted to do first. That might be a weird minor distinction, but I feel that kind of psychological difference is important, especially for new players. Uh, So um, let's then uh, talk about a different dynamic. Uh, What about, uh, Tony, what is a tableau Mm. game, and and why is that also terrible like worker placement? (laughs) Tableau games are the worst, and here's why. In a tableau game, every player has a little board in front of them. Uh, you know how often when you think of board games, you think about a group of people gathered around one big central board. But in tableau games, while there may be a central board, most or all of the action is on each player's individual little board, which is kind of like a placemat. It's just right in front of them. Uh, and the artwork and the writing, if there is any, 
is going to be very small and it's not going to be able to be seen by really anybody in great detail except the person who it's right in front of. You're constantly leaning over to have to look at someone else's tableau, for instance, if you want to know what they're doing. Exactly. One of the great pleasures of board gaming is you get a bunch of people in a room that are friends and they all get to interact with each other in this uh, interesting um, structured way. And a a tableau game explicitly discourages interaction because it gives each person their own little individual plot of land, so to speak, which they're tending to. And um, there's no central point of focus. Yeah, it basically everybody sit in your own corner and play a game. <laughs> it's, right. Uh, I think it's. I don't know if this if someone else has used this. I don't know if I got this from you, Tony. But it's sometimes described as multiplayer solitaire. You definitely uh, did not get that from me, but that's that is what those games often yeah. feel like. Yeah. Uh, Bruce, what is tile laying? Oh, tile laying. Well, tile laying is uh, Carcassonne, really. Yep. Uh, and that's really annoying. Um, that game is very annoying. Uh, tiling is basically just taking it, it, you're, the good, the um, good. Whoa, 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 whoa! Oh my gosh! Yep. Oh, Bruce, Bruce spilled all of his tiles. I think he's laying a tile right now. No, there was a there was a cat monk. You can't do that. Um, there was a cat that was about to cause a huge gaming disaster, but he has been corralled. Sorry. Um, and by the way, cat, cats are one of board gaming's biggest enemies. That is true. Uh, yeah. That is true. Yeah. Uh, they, as they, if they if they try to play or if they uh, if they want to <laughs> investigate the board in any way, uh, monkey, stop it. Um, so the um, the tiling is basically a way in which everybody gets to interact by having some board that is um, is developed uh, over a course of gameplay. And what you do is, you know, there might be. You might you have tiles that you choose or that you're given or that you draw randomly, and you take these tiles and you add them to a uh, to a developing um, you know whatever structure or map or something that's in the middle that everybody's going to interact with. Uh, Carcassonne is one of the classic ones of these. Um, it's actually another one. It's one of the first type ones of games like this that I uh, that I play. It's called Tikal. Um, which you basically um, have tiles that you play, and then you have to calculate the exact optimal move that you have using a bunch of uh, little chits, and then it's just all horribly analysis paralysis. But, um, uh, you know, tile laying, I'm not really uh, big on tile laying. There's there's kind of a funny tile delaying card called Survive, a game called Survive, which uh, is sort of good for laughs, but I wouldn't recommend it as a, as a regular game. Um, I, I can't think of a good tile laying game that I would, um, that I would, the, the, the thing that I don't like about tile laying games is that they often have, you're either too, um, you're either too focused on the possibilities of somebody, of the next person playing a tile or, um, you know, you have to keep track of too many, too many possibilities, and very often the way in which those tiles are placed is a little too random. But um, I, I can't think of one that I really like that much. Tile lane is basically just dominoes, like when you think of it. I mean, it, it's, wow. that, like that's drop. kind of the <laughs> well, that's kind of the pattern for it. Like, like if I think of one of the antecedents of roll and move is, is backgammon. Tile lane is all based on, hey, isn't dominoes fun? Let's make a new version of dominoes. I personally don't care for dominoes, so yeah. Um, there, there are, and this actually gets to when we talk about these mechanics. 
some some of the best board games will take these mechanics in ways that they may not work and do cool new things with them. Uh, I recently tried a tile laying game, and Tony, I think that's when you were still here and we played it, which combines tile laying with another dynamic called bidding. Everybody knows what bidding is, uh, called Isle of Sky, where you draw tiles and then you put them in front of you and you put a price on them and people bid on the different tiles and anything they don't bid on, you get for yourself. So there's this calculation of do I really want this tile? What do I price it at so that nobody takes it? Um, uh, that That is tile lane with bidding. So a lot of times if a mechanic, if if we don't think it's good for new players or if we don't personally like it, you can mix it with something else like Carson City being worker placement plus a city builder uh, and kind of redeem a mechanic that we may not like. But yeah, I, I basically, as far as pure tile lane games, I, I'm not a big fan of them. I don't I think I'm a tile maybe. guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. How about oh, Tigers and <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tony, what were you going to say about Isle of Sky? I was going to say, I actually don't think I have played Isle of Sky. I think you probably must be confusing me with Canadian Paul. Oh, so that that was it. So Tony used to live here in Los Angeles <laughs> with me, and then he had the audacity to move away and get a job somewhere else. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that you, Isle of Sky, I guess, was after you had left. Uh, and Bruce, you were going to, did you have a tile lane game you wanted to recommend? Or? Oh, I just wasn't going to ask about Tigers and Euphrates. What do you think about that? Oh, very good. That's a tile laying game. Uh, and this gets to something. Bruce, why don't you explain the difference? This is something that new players might hear a lot between Euro games and Ameritrash. Oh. <laughs> because yeah. I think of Tile and Euphrates. Uh, tile and Euphrates. Tile. <laughs> Tigers. Yeah, that's its other name. Uh, Tigris and Euphrates as a quintessential Euro game. Yeah. Uh, so, so explain to us the distinction uh, between those, and would we necessarily recommend one or the other? Well, um, so I, t- any game can be a any genre, but I don't think a game can be Euro uh, can be a Euro game in Ameritrash. I think those are those are uh, kind of uh, mutually exclusive things. The mechanics can be, I guess, Euro, but the, the a, a, a Euro game is a game in which things are generally very abstracted. Uh, the Mechanics are very clean, um, and there is a dearth of things. Things often serve multiple purposes, and there's a dearth of um, extra stuff. Right? It's they're very, they're very. Um, I would call them efficient games, and the thing that you get in the mm-hmm. box is very efficient at presenting the stuff that you're doing. Um, and I would say too, the theme a lot of times is kind of optional or contrived. Right, like, right, right, right. They're like I said, that's what I meant by abstract. So they're abstract in the sense right, that the right. thing you're doing is not like. I mean, you may be crowning a king, but you know, you're just you're, you're turning something sideways, and that's you know, the king now the king is crowned or something, or you're you know, you're putting a blue block instead of a red block, and you know, the red block represents Catholicism or something like that. So um, <laughs> the um, but uh, but they're very. And, and, but ahead, by the way, this can be this can be I think a, a huge trap for new players mm-hmm. is they see something and they're like, oh, I like that subject matter, right? And they get some relatively abstract, relatively Euro game design that doesn't do anything to create that theme in their imagination, and they think, oh, board games are you know I might as well play chess. This makes no sense. I don't like right. it. Right. Uh, so that can be a trap for new players. Right. Um, and and then Ameritrash is sort of the opposite of that. Um, you know, the mechanics can still be sort of, you know, they can be clean or not. And there are some good Ameritrash games that have, you know, the, 
that sort of mitigate that. But the, the point of an Ameritrash game is really to get you to sort of wallow in the in the, the detail of stuff, right? Whether it's – they often have figurines and, you know, if you're crowning a king, then you'll have a king figure and then you have to put a crown on the king figure and then you might put a staff in his hand. And then, you know, it's, it's just all sorts of – they're just stuff. you got to do the things, right? It's a, you're I think Bruce was just talking about playing with dolls. <laughs> and, and I feel like in Ameritrash games, I very, I very much feel like that. I feel like the people really want it. This the whole idea of, uh, and this is this is kind of a bias on my on my part. I'm not a big fan of minis. Um, I kind of like a game that can do board game aesthetic. And I feel like if you have a flat board and then you start putting all sorts of like towers and and you know things and then. The the the, the, dis, the there's sort of a disconnect for me between the 2D board and the 3D stuff that you're putting on it, and I, f- I find it very odd. Um, but you know, a lot of games now, you know, are, are basically I think people buy them to have the minis and they want to play with the minis, minis being miniatures. Uh, and I, that's that's not an attraction for me. It's not, you know, people listening to this maybe may think, oh yeah, I really like those things, and and maybe if they're if there are board games that do that, then maybe I'd buy one of those, which is fine. Um, it's just not uh, its not my thing. But Ameritrash definitely is something where if, if you're going to do something, it, it's, sort of, it's very explicit, right? So that, so, and, and that often leads to sort of a proliferation of rules, um, and often they can be a little fiddly, and sometimes, you know, to have a good Ameritrash game, you sort of have to account for things like, you know, if you're going to put a bunch of pieces on the board, you better have a board that's not, if you jar it, it's not going to knock everything over, right? So there's a whole bunch of other considerations that come into play when an Ameritrash game gets on the table. Now, Tony, you mentioned, you made a joke about playing with dolls, but I'm with you. I mean, if you just substitute the word dolls for action figures, (laughs) I think that accounts for a lot of the popularity of a bunch of Ameritrash designs, and specifically a bunch of very popular Kickstarter campaigns. Yeah. People will just make little action figures, and without even knowing much about the gameplay, people will look at those and think, yeah, that looks like a cool action figure. I'd want to put that on my desk in front of my monitor. Therefore, I'm, I'm, I would love this game. Yeah, I have um, nothing against playing with dolls. Don't get me wrong. Even in computer game form, I love The Sims was one of my favorite things, and there's no video game more like playing with dolls than The Sims. But uh, I think, Tom, yes, what you're talking about is this phenomenon where people will buy board games uh, or strategy games with rules and, and, and it's a whole game that comes in a box uh, and they're, but they're doing it for the toys that come in it. They're not doing it uh, because uh, the game is going to be any good. And a lot of the time these games end up not being particularly good. Right. So uh, Tony, I'm curious if you agree with what Bruce said. Uh, And I know you're not saying this is a hard and fast rule, but Bruce, you mentioned that you felt Euro games and Ameritrash as concepts were mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony, do you agree with that? Uh, Euro, tra- Euro games and Ameritrash games are mutually exclusive. I, you know, I'm trying to come up with an example of a game that's sort of a crossover, um, and I know there are tons. None, of, none is coming to my the tip of my tongue at this very moment. Um, but I, I think there's some gray area there, honestly. I do, too, and I, and I know, Bruce, again, you're not meaning necessarily as a hard and fast rule, but a lot of games do fall very clearly on one line or the other. But I do think there are some cool designs that have elements of both, mm-hmm. and that, therefore, you could get into a heated semantic argument about whether it's Euro Trash or, or, 
uh, uh, sorry, Ameritrash or Euro gaming. Uh, and one of them, I think, is Voyages of Marco Polo. Mm. Uh, it has a lot of cute little things, and you've got a card with a historical character on it, and there's camels, Eesh. and there's there's spice meeples. Um, yeah. So I don't see. I, yeah, I don't. That, that's that's not to me. That's uh, that doesn't really hit Ameritrash though, because it's it's so. Um, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to do, but but the visual payoff is not. I mean, I don't get anything. I mean, the big big deal is a camel. I mean, I think you could change those camels to little camel counters, yeah. and it would be the same game, and nobody would really complain. War yeah, the I Ring actually agree with Bruce. I I think I think Marco Polo is is fully a Euro, but. Um, but I still think there's probably some crossovers. <laughs> I just yeah. can't think of it. Well, I think I think War of the Ring might be something that that is mm-hmm. sort of a crossover, although it's a little more in the Meritrash. You have the figurines, which I, I actually kind of drive me nuts. Um, but uh, you know, there's die rolling and there's special dice, and it, rather than just having one, two, three, right, you have a die with a sword or a, you know a crown or a something or other. Um, that's a very Ameritrash kind of thing. Uh, See, now here... Yeah, oh, right. I thought you were going to make an argument that it was a Euro game. Right, no, right, I mean, very I think it just, it's, yeah. but the, it's, it's, it's very Ameritrash, but, but in, the, in the way that it uses some of the concepts, like the cards, you have limited cards that are, that are uh, you know, combat or not, and then it's area, you know, you just move through these areas. Um, there's, some, there's some Euro element to it, but yeah, it's, it's more of an Ameritrash game. I'm actually, to bring think, up Cosmic Encounter again, I think... Cosmic Encounter predates any of the so-called Euro movement, and uh, it's right in the thick of many Ameritrash games in the 70s and, and 80s. There were a ton of Ameritrash games, and not really any Euro games, certainly not that, that we were playing. But um, I, I would say it's kind of in the middle, because it has uh, cool little spaceship tokens, um, and it has these alien powers. The box comes loaded with I don't know, 50 different kinds of alien powers that uh, each of which each player will have will select one of those 50 powers uh, from a hand of two. And there's expansion. There's a ton of expansions with new alien powers and there's little planet uh, coaster like uh, things which are very cute. But the basic core gameplay of Cosmic Encounter is uh, is very elegant, streamlined, and feels very Euro to me. Um, so I would say that game is actually kind of in the middle. Sure, sure. Uh, I recently got a game called Clockwork Wars, which is very steampunk, Ameritrashy. It has little painted figures. Uh, actually, the deluxe version has painted figures, but otherwise you've got little plastic minis, um, it's got little separate boards for different court intrigue things, um, but it's super elegant, very kind of Euro-y rules, uh, and I think of that as another crossover. And by the way, I'll be talking to the developer of that in a couple of weeks, hmm. um, so Clockwork Wars is one that I think kind of straddles the line. But here's, here's a, uh, I think, a hard and fast rule we can all agree with. It is definitely a Meritrash if you look on the box... And somewhere you see the words "fantasy flight." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's a, that's a publisher, uh, and they love uh, throwing in little detail stuff that kind of makes a game uh, a meritrash. Uh, Tony, what does it mean when you call a game a "dudes on a board" game? <laughs> I've heard this from you, Tom. I've never heard anybody else use it, but maybe it's in common parlance. Oh, I thought, you know what, I, I assumed that that was something that, like, a, a particular genre. Maybe not. Okay. Dudes on a board. I think, are you talking about games like Battle Lore? 
Uh, yeah, battle lore, or I think of even small world, where they're not actually figures. Like, right. You know what, maybe ter- territory control is what I'm trying well, to Well, battle lore and small world are both sort of um, entry-level war games, I think. Yeah. So maybe when you say dudes on a board, you're talking about war games. Uh, well, there you go. Bruce, are there war games? What's the difference between board games and war games? Is there a difference? Yes, uh, the, a war game, I have, this is a great uh, Marco Arnado, who uh, goes by Marco Wargamer on YouTube. You should watch his stuff. Uh, he gave me a great, uh, not gave me, but he, in one of his videos he said, a war game is a game that when I play it, I feel like I'm playing a war game. Huh. But th- it's kind it's of like the t- I know it when I see it porn of definition. Sort of, well, I think yeah. This is a tautology. I mean, that makes no sense. What? Oh, right. <laughs> um, uh, are there any... So, should new players be wary of war games? Well, I mean, I guess it depends what you call a war game. And we could have a three-hour conversation about this right now, and we could have, uh, you know, we could say... Uh, you know, you should, uh, you know, you should play Access and Allies. No, you shouldn't. You know, well, first of all, you shouldn't play Access and Allies. But even if you did, <laughs> you'd be playing a war game. I don't think you would be. Um, there are, you know, a, a war game is a game which tries to, in some way, convey the essential elements of some historical situation or, you know, uh, plausible uh, a historical situation. Like, so, you know, what if um, you know, what if Russia invaded, you know, Poland right now? You know, they obviously haven't done it, but, you know, you could write, you could make a war game, even, even though it's not really historical, because it hasn't happened, that's, uh, that's something that, uh, or you could make a game about the Battle of Hastings, right? Um, and those games don't have to have a lot of, um, a lot of special details, but they often do, because that's how the designers decide that they want to convey the the essential points of those historical situations and and that's to me that's really the essence like are you are you designing a game uh you know is stratego a game about you know napoleonic combat no it's just it's just there's nothing about the game that has anything to do with you know with any kind of combat at all it's just that those are those are clever little uh, icons that are put on the on the game now well, we, the game we talked about before, A Few Acres of Snow, is very much a war game, but it's very simple because what Martin Wallace and his genius has done is he's tried to take the essential elements of that you know campaign, which is that you know the British had a big naval advantage, but um, the, they didn't have a, uh, a, a way into you know they, it, it took them a while to advance from the coast to the frontier, and the French. Uh, had much more access to, you know, the native tribes, plus they had uh, better water access and, um, uh, you know, various things. The, the British military was able to ramp up faster. All these things are baked into a game with very simple mechanics, but he's trying mm-hmm. to represent something. Uh, in, similar to war games, like uh, some some war games will use, uh, like, like, I think super nerdy players will use actual, like, little physical tanks mm-hmm. and little physical soldiers and mm-hmm. measure the distance. Mm-hmm. Miniatures. Advanced squad, miniatures. Advanced Squad Leader, though, I think of as a super intricate game that's kind of like miniatures, but without miniatures. Right. Um, why are miniatures one of the dopiest things you can do on a tabletop? <laughs> uh, well, so miniatures are one of the coolest things that you can walk by for five minutes. Uh, 
it really is kind of a subgenre, isn't yeah, it? Though? Yeah. Well, I, I, I love how of... no matter how how nerdy a conversation can get, uh, the participants can always find a class of nerds to look down on. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> well, we shouldn't we shouldn't look down too far on on uh, miniatures because you know Gary Gygax, the inventor of uh, of Dungeons and Dragons, was initially first of all he was a big war gamer, and second of all, yeah. Um, he uh, he basically developed the these from a from a set of rules that were basically for medieval combat. And um, there's actually a really good book, uh, Playing at the World, which did, kind of documents how Gary Gygax was just trying to make these you know very elaborate rules for these miniature these these sort of medieval miniatures. Um, the the thing about miniatures is that the well, I have two problems with miniatures. One is that they're the uh, sort of the investment to enjoyment. Uh, sort of curve is huge that the amount of time and money you have to spend uh and, and preparation time to you know get a place to play and we have to set up you know a terrain and everything for the amount of time that you have to spend before and after the game for this tiny amount of game is is, is for me is terrible now i understand that people who like miniatures like painting them and like you know sort of designing all these dioramas and everything uh but I don't, so that's not the part that I'm going to enjoy. I'm just going to enjoy the gameplay. So that's number one. Number two is that, the, and Tom, you, this is interesting that you uh, mentioned uh, Advanced Squad Leader because Advanced Squad Leader actually doesn't work well as a miniatures game. They tried to actually do that with something called um, um, uh, Deluxe Squad Leader, which is that they had hexes that were really big and you're supposed to put units in them. And the problem is that the game is so fiddly and there's so many things. You know, you might have a hex that has one half squad in it and then they're you know they're broken but then they have you know desperation morale but they're fanatics but they're on a second level of a building but the building is burning and you know there's smoke that's drifted into the hex and yada 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 so you have to do so much stuff to in in war games to represent what's going on and miniatures really limit you with that i mean you have a tank and and how are you going to show that that tank's blown up or you know how are you going to you you have a big set of napoleonic uh of uh, figures, how are you going to represent that half of them are dead or that you know they're they're retreating and things like that? So once you set them up, you're really they're, they're really clunky in terms of actually playing with, and so that's the other that's the other problem. But they look great. I love I love going to a convention and seeing you know people who are playing Napoleonic miniatures. You just walk by like oh they're so beautifully painted. Then you go off and do something else. Well, it's kind of like Tony mentioned with collectible card games is that so much of the gameplay is beforehand when you're building your deck. Mm-hmm. I think that's the case with a lot of miniatures. Yeah. Whether Even if you're not painting them, right. a lot of it is collecting them. Yep. Uh, and a lot of companies, uh, it's, it's borderline predatory, I feel, will, will prey on this. And there's a very popular set of Star Wars miniatures games. One's called X-Wing, the other's called Armada. Mm-hmm. Uh, that are cashing in on the popularity of Star Wars that are straight-up miniatures games that are huge money sinks yeah. um, and that I feel a lot of the game there is outside of actually playing the game. is just wanting and collecting and, and paying for these things. Uh, yeah, I saw an Armada so, game the other day. Uh, I was at, a, one of the, at the game store and all these guys came in with their Armada stuff. And I mean, the, the individual things looked interesting, but I watched them play and I didn't really get a whole lot out of it. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, well, one thing I do want to mention is that it, this is interesting business models. You know, uh, we all probably are familiar with the Warhammer universe and the idea that you can right. play Warhammer miniatures. Um, and one of the things that the Warhammer universe had done in the past, and I don't know if they'd still do it. I haven't played Warhammer. I, I never played it 
regularly, but I've played it a few times with other people's Warhammer stuff, is that you know you would you would sell a bunch of units and then you'd sell another bunch of units, and in order to get people to buy the units that you just produced, rather than sticking to their old army, is that you would make the units that you just sold much better. The rules, they, you know, they were tougher than everything. So then the next set you sold had to even be even tougher. So eventually, you would just have this sort of pyramid thing, and then you'd, you'd put out a new rule book and then sort of equilibrate everything, and then you start making new figures again. So yes, it's very predatory in many ways. And that's what happened, I think, with Magic the Gathering, with its popularity, is... For relatively simple rules, we just have to keep selling more and more powerful cards mm-hmm. and revising the, the rules. Uh, Tony, one of the ways around this is something called a living card game. What is that, and should new players look into that? Um, so a living card game is something like this Lord of the Rings card game or the Pathfinder adventure card game, I think, would be called the living card game. Mm-hmm. Where uh, you Net, Netrunner, by the way, is also a very popular Netrunner, which I have still not played, but I've heard good mm. things from Tom. Uh, so uh, yeah, it'll be so. Whereas Magic the Gathering, um, you could buy Magic the Gathering packs and cards for years and never have a complete collection of Magic cards, nor would you probably want one. A living card game is sort of a scaled-down, uh, achievable version of that kind of thing, where they'll release a starter kit, which has every card that you, uh, that is currently being made, because that's all they've gotten to at that point, and it's fully playable. And then they have planned expansions, uh, usually every few months, and they'll have a whole schedule. And sometimes they'll plan ten expansions down the line, and they'll say, this is the how everything's going to progress, and by such and such a date, you'll have all ten expansions if you keep up with them, and then you uh, you will, uh, you know, this is what you're going to be playing. So it's kind of like a manageable, uh, sort of like a manageable CCG sometimes. Right. Sometimes it's a solo or cooperative experience, like a Lord of the Rings living card game. And I have never really loved them all that much. I got the basic set for the Pathfinder game and I didn't really fall in love with it. Uh, and somebody else tried to introduce me to that Lord of the Rings one and I didn't really love that either. I don't know, Tom, how do you feel about living card games? Uh, I, I feel it's a, it's a, it gives you the best of CCGs and kind of calls away the worst of CCGs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does involve that dynamic you talked about um, a lot of them do, where you're spending a lot of time outside the actual gameplay playing it by designing a deck. Uh, Netrunner is a beautiful design, and I would love for it to be a simple, self-contained thing that a new player, two new players could sit down and, and play with each other. But even though it's a living card game, it just doesn't work that way. It requires you... Uh, Bruce, you mentioned this with A Few Acres of Snow. Uh, some games... Or no, I'm sorry, Ticket to Ride. Some games really benefit from and sometimes even require that you are familiar with a whole deck of cards and what they do and how they interact. Um, unfortunately, I don't think there's any living card game that isn't that way. Uh, so for that reason, it could be an obstacle for a new player uh, to sit down. Even if you just buy the core set of Netrunner, you have to know about a lot of pieces that aren't actually maybe going to appear in the game you're playing. Um, so, I, uh, yeah, I, d- I don't know that living card games are necessarily a good thing for an introductory player. But it does bring up, Tony, you mentioned that the Lord of the Rings one is co-op. Uh, 
explain to us the difference between co-op and other games. Like, well, what's this co-op idea, and is it something that new players should look into? <laughs> Uh, so cooperative games are a way of taking a game which should be played by only one player and allowing <laughs> multiple players to play in the role of one player. And I'm only being slightly facetious because that actually is the way uh, I feel about it because Tom convinced me of that. Tom, I did. I originally did not feel that way. I thought co-op ah. games, uh, some of them I thought were really great. And then Tom explained it uh, pretty much as I explained it just now. And I was like, oh, my God, Tom, you're totally right. <laughs> Now, there are certain kinds of co-op games which have a what's called a traitor mechanic where uh, there may be or is uh, one or more players who are secretly or uh, eventually revealed to themselves to be working against uh, the purposes of, uh, of the other players. Um, so uh, those games are usually there's then two factions of players, each of which is cooperating uh, within itself, but competing against each other. And those games, uh, I, I think, are fine, or that, you know, they can be wonderful, um, and they still qualify as cooperative games. Yeah, they're definitely not something that you... Like, like cooperative games are something that you just... You, you know, they're basically solitaire games that you play with your friends. When it introduces a traitor or hidden mechanic, that's no longer the case. Uh, and, and I feel those uh, those are one of my favorite genres, and I think there's some really cool options there for new players, as well as some misleading ones. Um, I think a very popular cooperative slash trader game is Battlestar Galactica, which I think is a horrible design. It's another fantasy flight thing, which just has a bunch of junk piled onto it. Uh, it takes way too long to play. Uh, a terrible recommendation for new players. Um, but yeah, a lot of times when you hear co-op, it's basically, you could play this alone, but instead you might as well bring some friends along. The problem being, if one person knows it and it's new to everyone else, the person who knows it, everyone else playing, they're just a liability to winning. Uh, so ideally, you let the person who knows the game explain to you what to do, at which point you might as well not even be there. He's just moving your pieces for you. Uh, this is, I think, sometimes called the uh, pandemic problem, because uh, <laughs> The uh, a classically recommended co-op game for new players is Pandemic, uh, where you could just as easily sit down and play Pandemic on your own. Um, now, typically, the concession these games make to requiring multiple players is that mm -hmm. there will be information that you are forbidden by the rules to share with other players. So, for instance, you might have a... I believe Pandemic is this way. You might have a hand of cards, which have different abilities or values... And you can communicate in vague terms to other players about what you have. And Are you really not supposed to show your cards in Pandemic? I don't remember, but I think that's I think that's the case. Well, there there I are games like that. I don't right? think that is the case. Really? In pandemic. I, I don't. I think you can freely say, "Hey, I've got Rio. Do you have London?" Okay. I, I, I think. Enough. You know what? I, I'm not a pandemic. I'm I'm so not into pandemic that I could have it wrong. But but, but, but you're right, Tony. That's yeah. yeah that, go ahead, Bruce. No, no, no. That's it. That's that, that. That's the case with some games like that, right? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Keep going. Right. Is that they make it co-op by limiting the information available to you, that, in, as far as what the other players have. At which point, go ahead and introduce a hidden identity or a traitor. You might as well if you're going to hide information from each other. Make that involve gameplay rather than this contrived limitation. <laughs> Uh, for for everyone yeah. trying to fight against the same system. Yeah. Uh, 
So then, therefore, if you could play a co-op game alone, is there such thing as a solitaire board game, Bruce? Oh, my goodness, no. I mean, besides solitaire, <laughs> the game? No, I can't think of Right, if you're going to play alone, you might as well play a video game, right? right There's no reason right, to play yeah. a board game alone. No, I can't imagine why you would do that. Oh, no, wait, I can, actually. No, that, so so that there are quite a few solitaire board games, and I have to admit that while I love solitaire board games as things to look at, I have a very hard time sitting down and playing them. So now I want it, there's a there's a term that Tom introduced to me which uh, I love and I just want to uh, spread it which is called Tom introduced to me the idea of a, a solo duo tear game. And <laughs> And that turns out to be something that I used to do as a kid. And it's that I would set up my incredibly complex war games. Oh, yeah. Nobody had any interest. You know, well, I had actually sorry, I had friends that would play with them with me. But at, at a certain point, you know, uh, you know, those friends were, you know, weren't even going to play some of these more complicated things. And so I was like, OK, well, what am I going to do this with? So I would just set them up and I would play against myself. And so I'd sit oh, on yeah, one yeah. side of the board. And then I would turn around and I'd say, OK, now I'm the French. Ha ha. The Germans don't know what I'm going to be doing now. Um, and so you just try to play it out. And when you're a kid, you can kind of do that sort of thing. But it, it gets kind of ridiculous. Now, now, solitaire board games are games in which typically you're playing against a system. And the great uh, advantage to playing against a system is that the system doesn't have to play the way you're playing. And so a system can avoid the whole problem that uh, we run into in computer games, which is the idea of AI and how the AI is always terrible. Um, and so a system is basically just a way in which the game uh, throws obstacles at you. And if it throws enough obstacles at you and, and you don't achieve certain goals, then you lose. And those, um, the idea of the system can be tuned in such a way that you can generally make a pretty challenging solitaire game. That's not, that's not the problem. The problem is not making it too challenging. The problem is making it interesting and uh, playable. But there are plenty of uh, plenty of good solitaire games. Now, I'm I'm uh, I have to say I'm a little um, I'm a little I, I don't know that much about the actual. There are, there are a couple sort of Euro solitaire games that I know about, but um, but I know more about you know historical war game solitaire games, and there are quite a few uh, that are good. Now, there, there's also a difference between solitaire games that allow you to play. Um, you know, play a game and a solitaire game that just takes you through a, um, you know, through a sort of an adventure where you're kind of right. rolling dice and pu pulling cards and just seeing what happens to you. Uh, and there are games where, uh, you know, you're actually making uh, significant decisions that are altering the course of gameplay. So that you have to really know uh, which one you're getting into because I don't really enjoy that first kind. So, uh, what, uh, what oh. the listeners will, will hear is that Tony and I are playing a solitaire game called Dawn of the Zeds, mm. which we both like, and we're going to be uh, – this will be uh, – uh, it's actually already started by the time you're hearing this. We'll be in ins installments explaining to you how we're doing every five turns in our respective games. Ah, uh, that's great. So solitaire games are, are something that I feel are viable. Mm. Uh, I, I think part of the problem with the solitaire game is that because – there's no one else there to remind you of the rules mm -hmm. and to talk about with the rules. One of the problems with the solitaire game is you have to learn it thoroughly before yes. you start playing it. That's true. Uh, no one's going to teach it to you because if someone's going to teach it to you, you would just play a two-player game or whatever with them. Yep. Uh, so solitaire games require a fair amount of initiative on your part. 
um, Bruce mentioned his game of the week is not something called Onirim, which is uh, a solitaire uh, deck management game. Um, so there are all sorts of options for new players here, uh, some of which are super complicated, some of which are a little easier to try. Uh, but I think all of us are fans to varying degrees of solitaire games uh, here. Um, let's... Uh, so let's now talk about some of the specific things. Now that we've sort of explained some of the dynamics, some of the terms you can hear, what are the things that you need to look for, that you need to worry or care about when you're considering a, a game to play? We mentioned, for instance, uh, in Tableau games, or there's not a lot of interactivity. Um, I think we would all agree that a good game requires constant interactivity almost constant, amongst the players. Yes. Like, it should almost never not be your turn. Most games are round-robin. Mm-hmm. I do my turn, Bruce does his turn, Tony does his turn, the next guy does his turn, and when it's not my turn, I'm just hanging fire. I might as well check my messages on my cell phone or something. Uh, you said you're hanging been... fire? Yes. Yeah. I've never heard that expression. Uh, Tony, you're, you and your New York values. Hmm. You, <laughs> 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 it might be a southern thing. Uh, yeah, you're just hanging out with nothing to do. Um, and you might as well not make any decisions, because by the time it gets around to you, the board, the state of the board will have changed. So don't make any plans yet. Wait until the guy before you has finished his turn. Then sit down and figure out what you're going to do, which makes your turn take all the longer. Um, this is a conventional way that most games play. And I think it's a bad idea to introduce new players to board gaming this way, especially if you have more than three. You know, because when you have three players, it always was either just your turn or it's about to be your turn. But once you have four... Or it is your turn. Oh, thank you. There is that other important state. Uh, When you have four players, you've got a dead zone there. And when you have five players, the dead zone is all the wider. So what are some games you guys can think of that get around this problem? Uh, let's see. I mean, there's the uh, one genre of games that we didn't talk about, uh, the social deduction genre. Um, which, which I would almost put under party games, but go yeah, ahead. I think, yeah, it's, in my opinion, it's a subclass under party games. But um, in those games, you're trying to figure out who's who and 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 who's on your side and who's not. And everything that transpires, every word that's said, every glance that's exchanged between two players, every card that's played, uh, can be a clue as to what people are trying to do. And so you are incentivized to pay attention to absolutely everything that's going on. In fact, there's too much for you to pay attention to at any given time. If you have multiple players, there's, you know, maybe five different faces that you would love to be looking at, but you can really only look at one at a time. So you're never at loss of something to do, even if that something is watching and listening. So I think that many games in that genre are wonderful for this. And this is where, like, co-op games with a hidden identity or a traitor specifically yeah. come into play. It's, it's in your best interest. Part of the gameplay is watching how other people behave when it's not your turn. Yeah. Right. I would add to, the, to that, uh, that was a good example, I would add um, sort of role games where, uh, role playing, I don't, I don't know what to, how, to, how to describe them, games in which you choose a role, but then that role gives you a bonus, but then everybody gets to do something. So I'm thinking of a game called like uh, Race for the Galaxy, uh, or, you know, frankly, um, 
uh, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, yeah, exactly. I was thinking um, where you get to choose. I'm doing X, so that means that everybody's doing X, but I get to do more of X, or I get to do yes. X with a twist, or you know, yep. I get to. So, so that's a case where everybody's always paying attention because you are always rewarded by getting to do something. And I think those are those are uh, and and the other thing we didn't talk about, but because uh, there, are, yeah, I think it's fallen out of favor, but auction games. Um, where you, uh, you know... Oh, right, I mentioned bidding before right. in terms of Isle of Sky, but yeah, that is auction games, so go ahead, yeah, that's, so, that's a great example. Yeah, auction games where, you know, somebody puts something up for auction or some there's some variable value that is being placed on something, and then anybody can, you know, increase that value or, you know, lay claim to something, and uh, even if you don't have the immediate right to do so, the fact that somebody next to you might choose to do it changes the whole uh, game, and you're always looking, well, you know, what can I afford to do, and is he going to do that, and then what's going to happen next? So uh, I think auction games are a good uh, a good way of uh, getting around all that. Uh, a, a venerable example of that, which still holds up, is a, a Rainer Knizia game called Ra. Ah, uh, yes, Ra, you... Oh, yes, that's... Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's a good thing that Ra was only made in uh, 2013, <laughs> so it's good. <laughs> well, I actually think Ra has been obsoleted by a game I recently came across called Booty, oh, where... Uh, uh, no, sorry, I won't play that game. <laughs> well, it's... No, no, it's not that kind of booty. Uh-huh. It's, we're, all, we're all pirates, mm. and... You get, oh, then uh, I won't play it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you draw a bunch of cards that represent loot, mm-hmm. and then one person who's the quartermaster divides them into lots, mm-hmm. and one at a time offers everybody a lot. Do you want it? Do you want it? Do you want it? No. If nobody takes it, you get stuck with it. Wait, is this so the what game you that to... you see in Barnes & Noble and stuff all, all the time? It's like a little card game? Uh, it uh, It's not a little game. It's published by Mayfair. Like It's an actual... Oh, okay. It's I'm, not like a casual party game. I'm confusing thing. it with something. Um, but it's that same thing that Bruce is talking about with, with auctions or bidding, where not, not only, there's not turns because any time somebody takes a turn, it's relevant to you. You have a decision to make during that turn. Uh, Tony, one of the things I was hoping you would mention, because you like this and I don't, uh, there's a card drafting game called Seven Wonders. Yeah, now I will say that I have kind of uh, not – I don't love it as much anymore, but I do think uh, – what Seven Wonders does very well is everyone is always involved um, at every second, which is exactly what we're talking about right now. Um, you're always looking at cards in your hand, selecting a card, uh, and everyone's doing it simultaneously. And you can play with up to seven people, and the game plays just as fast um, with seven as it does with three. And I think that's a huge accomplishment. It's It's... Yeah. I can't think of another game that does that. Now, uh, Tom doesn't really like that game, and I, I kind of... Uh, it's definitely not my first choice. But uh, And it's it's a, it's a weird niche, because if you have uh, fewer than seven players, there's probably better games. And if you, it's unlikely to have seven gamers hardcore enough to play Seven Wonders uh, who would not be better served by... A, uh, a a party game. I, what, what I mean to say is, usually if you have seven people together, they're not all going to be hardcore enough to play Seven Wonders. They're they're probably going to want to play something a little lighter. Yeah. And and here too, by the way, is where uh, like the number of people you have is hugely important. Um, even if you have a game that supports six players, it's probably not always a good idea to play it because uh, playing time. For me, and I imagine especially for new players, and certainly for adults 
who have real lives and children and spouses and they have to be at work in the morning. Uh, playing time is incredibly precious and arguably more important than, than the cost, the, the monetary cost mm-hmm. of games. Right. Uh, so I've come to a point in, in my life, and I imagine many new board gamers might be here, where I really resent a game that takes three hours to do something that could have been done in 30 minutes, oh, yeah. for instance. Um, so playing time, hugely important. Uh, Tony, can you trust the playing time on the side of a box? <laughs> yes, you can trust that it will be approximately one-third to one-fifth of the total <laughs> playing time of the game. Yes. Uh, what, are, what are some games that you guys feel, because let's start talking specifics now, mm-hmm. uh, that you guys feel are good for new players that nail that playing time issue? Gosh, I think that, you know, we've, we've mentioned some games. I think Stone Age can still be a, uh, a game that can be played by, you know, new players. There's not, there's not as much cock-blocking as... as it, you, you can still get in on things. You might not get as much of what you want, but you generally get some of what you need. Um, mm-hmm. It sounds like a song. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, Wait, that's what I, that I th- Rolling Stones song is about? Yeah, actually, yes, it was. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I mean, it's you know, it's about the it's about Neanderthal times, so you know, we all we all can can sympathize with that. So I think that's a game that you know it goes pretty fast. Everybody's rolling dice. It's kind of fun. You see the thing come up, and you choose something or not something or not. It it it's pretty straightforward, and I think it, it ends pretty uh, pretty quickly. It doesn't the, the the number of players doesn't generally. Um, really increase the playing time, I don't think, of, of, mm-hmm. of uh, Stone Age, simply because of the way that the decks, the, the, the way that decks come. So right. there are like games that yeah, you know, Tom ahead. likes that are, uh, and I like them too, and I introduce, actually introduced them to Tom. I, I always love to take credit when I bring a game mm-hmm. to Tom's place that Tom ends up liking, yeah. uh, because Tom is a very discerning game palette. Um, mm-hmm. Love Letter uh, and Lost oh. Legacy. Um, are games that play very quickly. Was that a groan of displeasure, Bruce? What was that? No, uh, that was like, oh, that that game came up. No, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I've never played it, but I keep hearing about it. Yeah, it plays very quickly. Uh, it has very limited but interesting decisions, and um, it's it's excellent. So love. And by the way, I just realized this, Tony. I don't know if you knew this all along. Uh, Love Letter was the original game that was created, and I wish I could remember the developer's name. It was a Japanese uh, developer, Japanese design. Uh, it was Americanized as Love Letter. It was previously a game about, uh, I guess, a, a Japanese imperial court roles. Uh, and Love Letter was turned into like a Western princess with baron and a king and a, a countess. Um, it was reissued as Lost Legacy, which is the same initials, LL. So go figure. Uh, but Lost Legacy would be one of the three games I would pick if I was stranded on a desert island with people who don't play board games. So one of the thought exercises we're going to do is if you're stranded on a desert island, me, Bruce, and Tony, what three games would we bring with us that we could introduce to the other people who are stranded, none of whom has ever played a board game in his or her life? Yeah. Lost Legacy is one that I would pick. Love Letter itself is uh, is really quaint. It's the the rounds play in literally five minutes, and the idea is you play successive rounds. You whoever accumulates a certain number of points over those rounds wins. Uh, it requires very few pieces. It consists only of sixteen cards. Um, but what they have done with Love Letter, 
Is this Z-Man Games? Who publishes that, Tony? Uh, uh, Seiji Kanai is the designer, and I guess... AEG. AEG Games is the publisher. Right. So AEG is the publisher, and I would not hesitate for a moment to recommend that any man, woman, or child on this planet goes out who's interested in board gaming and buys a copy of Lost Legacy. Because what Lost Legacy does is it takes the basic formula of Love Letter where you're you're working through these 16 cards. Each player on his turn, he just draws one card and plays one card. One card. Uh, you, it's kind of like almost a hot potato. Like, who has the princess, the super important card, and can he or she hide it until the end of the round? Um, Lost Legacy takes that and adds variations to the gameplay. There are different copies of Lost Legacy you can buy. One's called, like, Lost Legacy Starship. There's Lost Legacy... Holy Grail, uh, they, they have different themes, um, but each of them is strictly 16 cards with the same dynamic. On your turn, you draw a card, you play a card. Uh, so Lost Legacy nails this idea of, A, a short playing time, and B, it's always important that you pay attention to what other people are doing because you're specifically looking for one particular card in that set of 16 cards. Hmm. So you want to look at what people have played. Um, well, if we're talking so, about sorry, if we're talking about things that have a that, about playing time and and we're revealing our uh, our, our uh, Desert Island games, then uh-huh. then I think that a perfect thing that uh, has a basically reasonable playing time, you can sit down. Now it's only two players, um, that which is the problem. But uh, if you have two players, you have somebody else on a desert island. I will play Hobbit Stratego with that person till until ah. the end of time. Okay, so not called that. Uh, <laughs> What's the actual name? So the, the, ga- the name of the game is actually Lord of the Rings, The Confrontation. You have to be careful because they, they came out with a subsequent version which has, like, you know, additional uh, stuff. Like, it's, the, there's, a, there's a version and there's another version of, the, of all different units and all different abilities. But, but what I, all, I, all I want is the basic. They came out with a, originally a great version. It's a small like, travel box. You can quickly, you know, easily pack it into your backpack. It came in just it's there. And it, all it is is we call it Hobbit Stratego. Tom Tom coined that name uh, for it um, many years ago. So it's just a game in which each player uh, there's a light player and a dark player, and they represent the two sides of, uh, in the uh, Lord of the Rings. And as the light player, your goal is to traverse this uh, this diamond shaped map board. Uh, from your side to Mordor, and you have to get Frodo to Mordor. And um, the Dark player has to get either three of his units into the Shire before Mordor, before Frodo gets to Mordor, or to kill Frodo. Uh, and the, the genius of this game is that you're just moving across these... these uh, this, this, like I said, it's a diamond-shaped board, so the ends are narrow and the middle is wide... And as you move forward, you get more and more up, you know, uh, choices because there are more spaces as the board gets wider. And then it, you get fewer and fewer as you go further as it gets narrower. But you only have a limited number. Each player has the same number of pieces. I forget how many there are. I think they might be like eight and nine on each side. And what you do is you take the... Um, each unit can move generally forward, but then each unit has some rule that it can break so you know um you can some aragorn might be able to to attack in all different directions or uh um 
Gandalf can can do a certain thing. And and it's we say it's stratego because each unit has a value, and so you compare it to the value of the other unit that you're attacking, right? It's just you, you move an attack person and you say, oh, I have a two, you have a three, I lose. No, you don't, because you also secretly choose cards. And the great thing about it is that the cards that you have are limited. And so once you play a card, you can't use it again. So you might use your strong card to win a battle early, but then the other player knows that you don't have that card. Also, you have text cards that might say, oh, just ignore what the other person's card says. Or make the other person's, if the other person has a, a numeral card, make it zero. And so it's this, it's this amazing sort of bluff-counter-bluff game. Uh, I remember the first time I, I played it uh, with a, um, a friend of mine, uh, who thought that it was, you know, I, I explained the rules to him, and he said, okay, whatever, yeah, this is fine, I get it, this kind of dopey, blah, blah, blah. And then I crushed him by, you know, playing the cards in a certain way. You know, he was just playing, okay, I'll play the best card, and I'll, you know, defeat there, defeat there, and then I like I killed half of his, his units before anything had happened. And he said, oh, I get why this is a bluffing game. And then, I mean, it completely changes his uh, his opinion of the game. You know, and once you reveal a unit, you know, certain there's a um, there's a, a Nazgul that can fly uh, and flying Nazgul that that um, can move to any point in the board. But then uh, Legolas has an ability where he can kill the Nazgul. So if you just sort of willy nilly move your Nazgul to somebody, and then all of a sudden, oh, that's Legolas, you're dead. So it's it's a fantastic game. It it, it plays so I've played it many 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 times, and it's still really interesting to play and especially against the same uh same players they as they get to know each other uh the the, the back and forth is just amazing the uh hobbit stratego does uh it does five things that i love in a board game mm-hmm. uh first of all the the constant interaction with two players that is going to go without saying mm-hmm. there's constant interaction mm-hmm. uh the playing time which we just mentioned it's a short game mm-hmm. uh the idea is you play two rounds mm-hmm. and whoever has the whoever uh cumulatively won the best mm-hmm. wins. Um, it has the the bluffing. You mentioned bluffing. A really good game, and especially for new players, isn't just mechanics, but has some degree of psychology and mm-hmm. trickery uh, and guessing and cat psychological cat and mouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of that here. We mentioned before theming. Rainer Knizia, who designed this, did a great job adding Lord of the Rings theming. You know, Bruce mentioned the Nazgul and stuff, and Frodo's vulnerability and the fact that the, the dark side has stronger powers, but the light side gets better tricks. Um, and it does something that I adore in all game design. It introduces asymmetry. You know, the powers that Bruce, the tools Bruce gets to play this game are not the same as the tools I get to play the game based on which side we're playing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, Bruce, brilliant choice. I like that as one of your Desert Island choices. Uh, Tony, give us one of your Desert Island choices. You're stuck on a Desert Island. None of the other Jokers there plays board games. What are you going to bring with you? Okay. Um, my first Desert Island choice would be a social deduction game, or as Tom uh, somewhat pejoratively may call them, party games, uh, called The Resistance, which hmm. uh, is pretty popular now. They've made some spinoffs and things, but... Uh, in the Resistance, um, it is a hidden identity game, and there are two factions. There is a team of uh, good guys called the Resistance, and there is a team of bad guys called the Spies. And the Spies know who the other Spies are, but the 
uh, resistance does not know anything. Um, so to the resistance, anyone could be a spy or anyone could be on the, uh, the side of the resistance. And uh, I'm mentioning this game as one I would bring to play with non-gamers on a desert island because I've done the next best thing. I've played it with non-gamers in a, an urban apartment. And mm. it goes over very well, I would say, every single time. Um, whether people, you know, a lot of things, one thing that you often run into uh, with non-gamers, and sadly enough, you run into it frequently with, with gamers as well, is uh, people who are hung up on not losing. And this can be a big problem if people's only objective is to win and they're going to be annoyed if they don't win. Uh, with the resistance, I find that uh, even when uh, people lose, um, they don't seem to get too upset about it. The game plays pretty quickly and you can, if somebody has lost, uh, they they can, they're, they're going to, whether you win or lose you're, on your first game of the resistance, you're going to want to immediately play a second game. Uh, so people are always more interested in looking to the second game. Also, uh, you win and lose as a group. So if you if you lose, you're never the only person who's lost. There's always some people you can commiserate with. Uh, it's very simple for me to explain at this point, which I think is would be useful if it was if I was teaching it to non gamers on a desert island. And uh, yeah, so that's one of my picks. One of the one of the hallmarks of a great game, and Resistance has this in spades, is that when the game is over, does everybody who played want to talk about it? Uh, and resistance is ideal for this. Everyone is like, oh, well, you said this, and that's why you said that, and this is why I did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, resistance, a lot of it, is unpacking the action afterwards. Because mm-hmm. while you're playing, you know, you're lying, you're bluffing, uh, you're, you're trying to trick each other, you're putting on a mask. I mean, there's like a performance that goes with resistance. And so afterwards, you want to talk about that performance, and you want to sort of, you know, somebody did something really cool, you want to bring that up. Resistance has great post-game debriefings. Yeah. Um, uh, Bruce, give me another one of your Desert Island board games. So this is one... By the way, I almost put Raw on the list. Uh, uh-huh. I really like Raw. I really like it a lot. Uh, it's uh, it's a it's an auction game. Uh, you say it's been obsoleted. I don't really like pirates, so I'll stick with my <laughs> Egyptian gods. Um, but, uh, but I'm not going to put uh, Raw on the list. There's another game which I don't actually like as much as Raw, but I think it's a little... Uh, it's it's uh, it's a little easier for people to wrap their heads around, and because uh, I find that the 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 way that you score points in RAW, you have to play it about three times before new players start thinking, oh, I, I get how this works. Um, it's a game called Race for the Galaxy. Um, I used to like it a lot. I sort of got um, got I don't know. I got over it after a while because um, because I kind of saw how it played. But I think it it would it, it it's a good game and it illustrates a lot of different things for players about sort of the choosing of roles and how um, how different sort of factions or the way that you sort of can pursue different strategies using different types of cards. Um, and uh, I, I would always say that it's it's a better it's a better concept game for sort of teaching how Euro games work than it actually is a game. But I think it's enjoyable enough and it's space and everybody likes spaceships um, that uh, and, you know, the idea of outer space colonization that I think uh, new players could play. And you could play it with a bunch of people, and um, it really doesn't take any longer than playing with two people because people are just doing everything together. I mean, you have to make some choices, but um, people are doing things kind of simultaneously. So uh, you can you can whip out a few games of Race for the Galaxy in an hour and, and, and be done with it. So 
Now, I, I don't want to second-guess anyone's choices, but one of the things I would caution with Race for the Galaxy, mm-hmm. and Bruce, you might feel this isn't enough of an issue to, to make a difference, mm-hmm. I kind of feel Race for the Galaxy is one of those tableau games, like mm-hmm. multiplayer solitaire, where you're mainly concentrated on your corner of the table. There's not a lot of interaction. Now, I do know there have been expansions released for it, add-ons that I think have addressed that. Um, but the core game, you're right, Bruce, I love Race for the Galaxy, uh, but I do feel it does kind of suffer from that. Everybody's doing their own thing in their corner of the table. That's a good point. I think that that uh, that there's a you know, like you said the, the the expansions do address that, um, and uh, I think that if for new players you can sort of see how other you can also see how other people are doing things because you also do have to pay attention to how many points they're scoring. So you have to pay attention to that. Right. That right. Yep. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and, and you know what? There is a lot of, uh, and this is more of a, as you learn it, there is a lot of, not worker placement, cock blocking, but doing things specifically that don't help someone right. else because they're about to win at a certain level. Mm-hmm. So that's not entirely fair of me to, to put it that way, because the more you learn it, the less it is multiplayer solitaire, right. the more interactive it is. Yeah. Uh, I want to put on my uh, Desert Island list... Um, and I, I may be scooping Tony here. Uh, Cosmic Encounters mm. is a great game for something that I love in, in board game design almost as much as asymmetry. And it certainly has asymmetry, by the way. It has asymmetry, constant interaction. It's not the typical round robin in that you don't – I don't take my turn, and then Bruce takes his turn, and then Tony takes his turn, and I'm just hanging fire waiting for my turn because – on any given turn, you can only attack another random player, like you draw from a deck, and that's who you're fighting that turn. So every turn, you might be on the line. Furthermore, whenever two people fight, they bring everyone else into the battle. So there's constant interaction in Cosmic Encounter. There's asymmetry. Everybody has a unique power. But it also does something that I love in games, in that it has variability. No one game is going to be like any other game because the tools and the combinatorial possibilities of how those tools interact are myriad. There's different races that each have different powers. Tony, I think you mentioned there's like 50 in a box these days. Uh, Whatever race you play is going to be so completely different within the framework of relatively simple rules from whatever race anybody else is playing and from whatever race you might have played last game. Um, so that every time you play uh, Cosmic Encounter, it's a whole different ball game, And I love that in a board game. So I would definitely pick Cosmic Encounter as one of my uh, Desert Island games. And I'm pleased to say, Tom, that you're not scooping me because I was careful uh to to not select it because I knew I was going to be mentioning it so much throughout the podcast. <laughs> so I didn't yeah, all right. give it away. Fair enough. Uh, well, then, Tony, what's one that uh, that you did select because you aren't you weren't mentioning it a lot on the podcast? <laughs> um, I would choose a game called Saboteur, um, which is a card game that I think still qualifies as a board game because anything sure. in it could be done with tiles. Um, By the way, we should say, and I, I hate when... Uh, this is a sticky point for some people. It's not for me. When we say board games, not all of them involve boards. Right. Um, right. Some of them are just dice. Some of them are just cards. Uh, I think a more... And I don't know if this ever takes off, but a, a more accurate term might be tabletop games. Yeah, yeah. And but come to we, think us, of it, us old school guys just say board games. Yeah. So. 
Come to think of it, Resistance isn't really a board game either. But yes, it's a it is a board game in the sense that no, you're we, wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, Tony. There's a little board there where you put the tile to show which mission you're on. Mm. So there is a board that's in that's Resistance. There is a board. Um, saboteur. So in Saboteur, uh, interestingly, that also has uh, hidden identities, but um, it's not as black and white as uh, one side is is on one side and the other is on the other. There's all these different um, roles and some of them work together and some of them don't, and some of them work at cross-purposes with one but not another, and some of them don't give a crap what anybody else does. They just want to, to do one particular thing. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Saboteur is a game where the players play dwarves my, uh, digging mine tunnels underground, and uh, every turn a player plays a card uh, either adding a tunnel to the mine or they play a card in front of another player uh, or themselves to uh, indicate uh, fucking with other people or um, uh, performing some kind of special action. And uh, generally the goal is to dig a tunnel to this gold token, which you don't gold nugget and you don't know uh, where it is. There's three possible places it could be. Um, but there's all different ways to win depending on what role you have been randomly dealt. Maybe you are looking for that gold nugget, or maybe you're trying to prevent anyone from getting to it. Uh, maybe you don't, give a hoot about whether they get to the gold nugget. Maybe what you're looking for is these little crystal deposits in the, in the mine. So you want to make sure that you or other people play as many cards that have a little crystal icon on them. Uh, it's quite simple to explain. It plays very quickly, which you're going to find as a theme of the games that we're selecting in this part of the podcast. Um, and uh, there's a high level of interaction and uh, it's just, uh, it's a good one. Yeah, Saboteur is one of those, Tony, that you brought, and I think I was skeptical at first, and immediately, like, it's a staple in our group now. I have a copy of it, and uh, I, I don't hesitate to break it out when there are new players over. I love Saboteur. Yeah. Good pick. Yeah. Uh, Bruce, what is your third? So you've chosen uh, Lord of the Rings Confrontation, Race for the Galaxy. What would be your third Desert Island game? Oh, I'm sorry, Tom. You're going to have to... I, my thing was muted. Um, oh, uh, so my third game that I would choose is a, uh, I think this is going to be kind of uh, out of left field, and it's a very, very old game. It uh, it, pre- it really Uh-oh. predates games. <laughs> I got a bad feeling about this. Go on. Uh, it's called Acquire. I love Acquire. Yeah. Oh, my God. What? Isn't that that hotel game? Uh, well, it can be anything. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's a Acquire. I, I love Acquire, and I could play Acquire all day. Um, yes. Acquire. Acquire was a game that it, it, you can actually find it. I think you, in in uh, you know when they had what was those Windows the NT or something like that or two thousand or three point one or ninety five or one of those Windows that they had. It, there was a game called Oil Barons, um, which was I think a shareware kind of like you know Minesweeper type game. But it was actually I think it was a version of Acquire, um, and you could play it. I I love that. I love the um, it, basically what Acquire is is you. Um, you place sort of pieces on a board, and as you buy stock in these companies, they're hotels in the in the board game. And as these, as you buy stock, you try to get these companies taken over by somebody else, and then you get you know this payoff. Um, but then you know if they get too big, then they'll start taking over other things. And there's a there's a very um, Tigris and Euphrates kind of uh, uh, what do you call sort of feeling to it, where you want if you 
put a tile in between that joins them up and you, you want to get to a certain place before the other person does or you want to get your money out of something. It's, there's a, it, it's, it's a very interactive game. Uh, there's, uh, there's, you're constantly involved. And uh, and it's not really that complicated. I mean, it's not. I wouldn't say it's complicated at all. I mean, it's 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 very straightforward. Just that there's a lot of planning and thinking involved. I mean, if you love Acquire, how come you never brought it over for us to play? <laughs> I never brought it over because my copy of Acquire, which is um, a wonderful, it's the most beautiful uh, edition of it that was ever produced uh, from the I think early to mid '90s by rejuvenated rejuvenated Avalon Hill. Shortly after they were taken over by Hasbro. It's in a huge box, and it's at my parents' house, and I, uh, I, was, I never moved it to California. There has since been a newer, smaller, more compact, and cheap version, which plays exactly the same, and it's equally worthy of a purchase. Um, and it's great. Now, why I ever brought it over, it's a little bit dry, and it's a little bit abstract. Um, it is a game about growing businesses. In the, in the old version, they were hotels, and the new one, they are... Uh, I think tech companies they really mm-hmm. updated it there yeah. um, but uh <laughs> it's 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 about putting little squares on a gridded board uh to indicate the size of your company and you're spending money to buy stocks and you're keeping track of uh, how many stocks other people have purchased and I think it's it's really really great um i and I actually foisted it upon my family because it's kind of, it's it's a little bare bones and i mean that in a good way there it's it's um it was it's kind of the opposite of an ameritrash game even though it is highly american it was designed by sid saxon who was this board game design genius yes. mm-hmm. um but uh uh yeah it's a it's i think if people are not on the desert island looking to play a board game they might see you pull out a choir even though it is quite elegantly designed quite simple to play but they might look at these dry components uh, that are number with numbers and letters on them, uh, nothing particularly fanciful or, or colorful, and they might look at you and say, "This looks about as exciting as doing my taxes." Even though it's even though it is way more exciting than that, uh, it doesn't immediately appear to be. Well, here's one that's a relatively easy sell, uh, and this would be my third one to bring on a desert island, along with Lost Legacy and Cosmic Encounter. Uh, this one looks pretty sexy. Um, it's uh, based on so one of my favorite genres is this whole hidden identity trader mechanic uh, because I love how those games they've got their rules of course but the actual gameplay transcends the rules and becomes about player personalities, player interaction uh, player bluffing um, and Battlestar Galactica is an important early instance of that kind of game the problem with Battlestar Galactica very Ameritrash. Uh, it was built first specifically to cater to the theme with a lot of gameplay elements that were only kind of added as an afterthought. Like, oh yeah, maybe that's not a good idea, so we're going to add these rules to try to address it. Uh, it's got I think four or five add-ons that just make it messy. Uh, it takes a long time. Battlestar Galactica is basically a two, three-hour experience, and it can be exhausting. Um, someone then created... A, a scaled-down version of Battlestar Galactica. They just kind of trimmed off all the cruft and left the essence there. Unfortunately, they couldn't publish it as what it was referred to, which was Battlestar Galactica Express, 
because it requires a trademark, um, and that was already taken by the Battlestar Galactica game. So this fellow publishes this game under the name Dark Moon. And Dark Moon would be one of my Desert Island games because it's short. It doesn't have all that Battlestar Galactica cruft. Um, it's intensely psychological. And furthermore, unlike a lot of trader or hidden mechanic games, the people who are the traders, who are the bad guys, really have to be involved in the gameplay. In something like Battlestar Galactica, there's even a really good trader game called uh, Homeland, based on the TV show that we play. Uh, there's something called Camelot. There are a lot of trader games where all the trader has to do is let the players lose against the gameplay system. Uh, Dead of Winter, by the way, is another great one. In Dead of Winter, if you're what's called the betrayer, you know what? Just let the game run its course, and maybe at some point you might give uh, the evil side a little nudge, and then lo and behold, you've won. Uh, so in a lot of these trader mechanic games, the trader just hangs back and lets the rest of the players lose. Dark Moon is very carefully engineered to where you can't really do that. You have to, if you're on the bad guy team, you have to actively do things. Um, it uses dice as a really cool bluffing mechanic, uh, and it's super thematic in that the board is this really cool retro-looking control panel of a space station where everybody's working. Um, so Dark Moon, I found an easy sell because of how, how short it is uh, and how it really does trim down the gameplay to that trader mechanic. Uh, so that would be one of my uh, that would be my third Desert Island game. Uh, Tony, you have the Resistance and Saboteur down. What is your third game to bring to a Desert Island? So my third game um, is a bit of an odd one because I only acquired it recently, and I only played it a couple times, and it went over pretty badly. <laughs> uh-oh. uh-oh. <laughs> but I, I have faith that there's life in this game yet, and I, I know that uh, that it it's... It's I I just I loved it so much and I would love to after playing Saboteur with my island of non gamers introduce them to this and see how it went over. Uh, it's a game appropriately appropriately enough for a desert island called Lifeboats, and uh, in Lifeboats the premise is that all the players control each one controls a sort of a little squad of sailors that are all. Different, they're colored the same for each player. You know, I have the white sailors. Tom has the orange ones. Bruce has the blue ones. And um, their ship has just sank. They were all on the same ship, and the ship has sank. And they've all hopped into these lifeboats. And there's uh, a certain number of lifeboats on the board. And the the sailors are distributed among the lifeboats during setup. Uh, not all the same color in each boat. There's a, you know, maybe a mix in each, each of the boats. And the game is, um, over the course of the game, the boats are say are drifting or sailing straight ahead, each one in a, in its own lane. And they're heading for these islands and any lifeboat that gets to an island by the end of the game, uh, is going to give points to the players who have guys in it. You get more points, the more guys, of yours make it to these islands. Uh, the twist is that between turns, uh, sailors can change boats. And so your, your sailor can hop from a boat that's not doing very well into a boat that's doing wonderfully. Uh, the players are voting each turn on which boat, sh- which one boat should be allowed to move ahead. 
Um, ah. And the uh, every turn, one boat springs a leak, and a boat that has more leaks than people in it is going to sink and never reach the islands. And there's this other wonderful mechanic where... Uh, during the voting phase, whenever you, you vote on, on everything in this game, you vote on which boat's going to move forward, you vote on which boat's going to spring a leak, and it's majority rules. Uh, however, each player has three captain, I think they're called captain's hat cards, uh, which, you play, which you have the option of playing instead of a standard vote card. And if one player plays a captain's hat card, uh, which is expended at the time of, of use, uh, that player uh, issues by fiat the order of which boat moves forward or which boat springs a leak or whatever the decision is. They subvert the voting process and they say, it doesn't matter that three people voted blue. Uh, I, I play the captain's hat and I say green. Now, if more than one player plays a captain's hat, the captain's hats are invalidated and you look at the uh, the vote count as usual. So it's this wonderful kind of bluffing thing of who's going to play a captain's hat, if anybody. Uh, I don't want to waste my captain's hat this turn if anybody else is playing theirs, because then our captain's hats will cancel each other out, uh, and I only have a limit. And you time. lose them? Like, you lose your captain hat if someone else sees one That's at the correct. same time? That's correct. You have, a, you, have, awesome. you, have, you start with uh, more than one. You start with, I think, three. Uh, it might vary slightly based on number of players. But it's so... Uh, so streamlined, and it's all about jostling. You are constantly interacting, constantly jockeying for position, uh, constantly convincing. You are convincing and pleading with players to vote the way you want them to vote. And it may be obvious to you which boat you want to move forward uh, because it will benefit you the most, and you have to convince the other players that, yes, sure, it'll benefit me, but here's why it's going to benefit you to join me in voting for this boat to move forward. You know, it's it's so, so good. And unfortunately, the, <laughs> the one of the players who was in the group that I played it with, and she's a wonderful, delightful person, uh, she, something about the, I think I'm going to attribute it to the directness of the connection between what you do in this game and the positive or negative results it has for you or other people, uh, that really distressed her. She's a hardcore gamer, and she will play, she will win most games that we play, um, but she tends to favor these somewhat fiddly Euro games where there's, uh, you, you make a choice, you, you buy a tile, or you place a tile, or you bid on something, and it's either a good or a bad move, or somebody cock blocks you and takes the tile you wanted. And there's, she's okay with all that. Uh, and I think she's okay with it in, in these kinds of Euro games because there's a little delay between cause and effect. Or uh, it's not entirely clear if you lost why you lost. Uh, you know, it's, it's clear that you have fewer victory points, but would you have had more if you got that tile you wanted? Maybe, maybe not. Did so-and-so screw you out of winning? Maybe, maybe not. It's, it's, it, it can be hard to really trace the chain of events that definitively led to you losing. Whereas in lifeboats, it's abundantly clear who just prevented you from getting one step closer to the island, and uh, it's abundantly clear what you need to do to, to keep, keep making progress. And I, I suspect that that is the problem that she had with it. And, and it's the and reason we, that I love it. We we have a player who doesn't like games in which he has to lie, like the the hidden trader games. He yeah. he he, it, it, he says it just makes him stressed out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know people like she that. Yeah, that same reaction. Yeah. To, she was this friend I'm talking about was having that reaction to this game, 
except you don't have to really lie in this game. Uh, and But she was having that, that reaction that sometimes players who don't like lying have to games where you do have to lie. And I tried to psychologically analyze why she felt that way, and that's the closest I could come. Well, well, let's talk. Now that we've uh, given our Desert Island games, for me it would be Lost Legacy, Cosmic Encounter, Dark Moon. Bruce chose uh, Lord of the Rings, The Confrontation, Race for the Galaxy, and Acquire. Tony recommends The Resistance, Saboteur, and Lifeboats. Uh, so with those recommendations from us, let's talk about what are some things you need to do to get your friends on board and to, to get a group going. Uh, Tony, you mentioned that some people don't like certain types of gameplay with your friend. We have our friend who doesn't like to lie. Uh, what are some things to look out for or to be aware of when you're gathering your friends for these kinds of games? Does anything come to mind for you guys? Uh, you want people who don't need to win at all costs and who uh, who who it's a fine line to walk. You want people who will play to win and will uh, yes. will try hard to win and understand the rules and care about the rules and care about who wins. But you don't want them to care too much. You don't want them to care so much that they're going to make the evening uh you know, painful for for people who who beat them, or uh, for people that they're beating, and uh, it takes a special kind of temperament, I think, to to do that. And, and I think new gamers often are very focused on winning, and I, and um, it's it's almost like it's interesting because you, you you as a gamer, one tries to convince one's friends to be into games, but not too much. <laughs> And that's where I think the playing time comes into play. If you play something for three hours, the stakes feel much higher for a new player. If I just spent three hours playing something that I care about and I lose, I'm much more likely to be frustrated than if I played a round of The Resistance for ten minutes and I lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where I think playing time can help. If you have a friend like that who's really into winning, um, just make sure you pick something short so he can have a, he or she can have a couple of chances to win. Uh, Bruce, I know you have uh, been faced some unique challenges considering uh, where you live. You've moved a few times. Uh, tell us what you have done and how it's worked out as far as trying to get people together for games. Uh, so what, uh, what we generally do is we just find a bunch of people to play a game, and then we tell them uh, you need to read the rules uh, overnight and then come and play the game, and nobody has to ask any rules questions, and then we just play. <laughs> now, you actually have done something similar to that, though. Yeah, that's true. So, so uh, you know, our situation is that, you know, I play a lot of these, uh, you know, super nerdy man uh, war games, and the rules are very complicated. And, of course, in the old days, I couldn't get anybody to play that with me, and so I sort of lang- those games all languished. Now, because of the Internet, uh, I'm able to broadcast my nerddom in a very defined space to a very defined group of people who will say, hey, I want to play that game too. And so I think that's the thing to do is, you, first of all, uh, if there's a gaming store around you, and believe me, there are more gaming stores than you think. Uh, I live in, you know, uh, North Carolina, it's not the most populous state in the in, uh, nation, but um, in, in my area, there are three, no, four game stores. I mean, like actual game stores, not game stores like, you know, oh, we have, uh, you know, Parcheesi and Sari and some Monop- you know, a bunch of different Monopoly variants. They have, you know, uh, ad- advertising on the outside that says we have um, Eldritch Horror coming next week. So um, this is uh, a, a place you can just go. Uh, one place has what's – I mean, it's open gaming any time, but you can have open gaming uh, 
specifically on certain nights when people know to show up. And so Monday nights now that's playing with, uh, you know, that's sort of playing with potluck. Sometimes you find people that are really fun to play with. Sometimes you find, you know, people who are like uh, you said, just really interested in winning and, and it's very unpleasant. Um, so, you know, I've gone to uh, Board Game Geek and Consum World, and on Consum World, there's a, um, a social forum, and uh, you can often find um, game clubs around you. I found uh, one around here that has a bunch of people playing it, playing uh, with it, and basically we just send out emails and say, and what we've done is actually have a, we have sort of a subgroup of those people where we say, okay, actually I was, I was kind of not joking before, what we say is, okay, we're going to decide on a game the last uh, Saturday of each month. We're going to decide on a game, and the people that can make it uh, are responsible for reading the rules, and they're responsible for knowing the rules prior to showing up. And so nobody's being taught a game. Now, of course, we can, you know, most people will be playing it for the first time. There might be somebody who is uh, who's experienced with the game, so they'll be teaching uh, if they need to. But the but the idea is that everybody sort of has a buy-in, like you know. This is a complex game that we normally wouldn't get to play, so I'm going to do my part to get to play it. So now with the new players, work? pardon? Does that work? Yeah. Okay. It works with a certain. I mean, yeah. I, I imagine Bruce, as you're aware, it takes a very certain type of person. Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah. You know, this isn't something you want to do with your new group, by the way. No. Don't tell them. No. Go to go download this PDF, read right. it, show up, and then be prepared. Because yeah. you yeah, can no, read a PDF. No. Like I can look at a PDF. And without actually getting looking at the pieces in front of me and setting up hypothetical scenarios and things, I don't know that I would be able to uh, t- to learn how to play a complicated game like that. So we get people that come in. Oh, so they're looking at the stuff. I mean, they look at the the assets. Uh, sometimes they pull out the vassal module. But I mean, people come in with the, all the all the pages printed out, and they have they have a bunch of notes on every page. So yeah, and and this this gets to something that I would recommend is. A board game can only be as good, especially with new players, as it is taught, basically. I've had many bad experiences with board games where you can lay that at the feet of the guy whose game it is, who is teaching everyone, not understanding it very well, uh, and not knowing crucial rules, and when he's asked a question or she, that person has to look it up in the the manual, and that brings everything to a halt. Um, One of my biggest pieces of advice to anyone who wants to win his friends over to board games is you have to know a game inside and out. Uh, You have to also be able to communicate what you know. Um, Teaching a board game is hugely important because not only are you conveying information, by the way, you kind of have to be a cheerleader for it as well. Yeah. Like you have to have some enthusiasm. Um, Don't teach games you don't like. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Don't teach games you don't like. And also understand that never force someone to play a game he or she doesn't like because that is infectious. If you were at a table with one guy who's sitting there with his arms crossed and he's not enjoying it, that's going to spread. You know, everyone's going to feel bad about that guy and they're going to want to move on. Um, So make sure that you know the game well enough to get everyone's attention. Make sure you're not forcing someone to play something he or she doesn't want to play and make sure that, you know, you you can easily answer questions, Uh, you know. Unfortunately, you have to read the rules inside and out. And and the games we've recommended are relatively friendly for that. But as you get to more and more complex games, that becomes more and more difficult. I I will Um, also say, uh, Tom, you've raised a very good point about uh, teaching games. And Tom also is one of, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, he's the best uh, teacher of games that I've ever encountered. Um, And that is crucial. 
not only is he good at teaching games, he's good at explaining uh, strategy, like why you might want to do certain things or make certain choices, which I think is a, is is important. And he somehow is able when he is done explaining the game. Uh, I he's very good at somehow. Ma- I don't know if other people feel this way. I really want to beat Tom at the game he just explained. <laughs> like I feel like if uh, I'll go to another game night uh, hosted by friends who I who I like very much, and they'll explain even if they know how to explain the game. At the end of their explaining it, I'll be like, "So really, what's my motivation here? Why do I want to defeat you?" I, I you know, I, I and I think it might be the confidence with which Tom explains the game. And I'm not even saying that he always explains it 100 percent perfectly. Sometimes, if it's a brand new game, Tom would explain it perfectly, and that's a totally forgivable thing. Like it's very difficult to to learn a game before you've ever played it, and. I, you know, I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've correctly explained games, even that I have played repeatedly. Um, but regardless, Tom is so, so good at explaining games that that you feel like not only do you know how to play it, you want to beat him at his own game. <laughs> uh, I did a podcast uh, maybe a year and a half or so ago with a couple of game designers about how to teach board games, and I would encourage anyone interested to to maybe Google that. Uh, just quarter to three podcast, how to teach board games. Uh, where I talked with some of the guys who actually make games, who know, you know, what a challenge it is having their games taught, uh, and I would encourage folks to listen to that. Or you but could, just you in could a put nu- a link in uh, in the bottom of the po- the description. I could podcast. also link to it. Yeah. yeah. So if yeah. you are actually not listening to this on iTunes and you're listening to it from the the website, you'll you'll uh, I'll, I'll put a link there. Um, but just by way of a quick thumbnail, uh, I, I think y- you need to teach. A, a, a board game the same way you would do a presentation, for instance. You can't just read the rules and then tell the people the rules. You have to think in your head what's the best way to present these rules, in what order. And the manual, by the way, the rule book, is almost never going to do it in that order. Uh, so, so I feel the three things you need to keep in mind when you, when you teach a game, and they go in this order, the first thing you need to tell someone is what they need to do. You know, why are we here at this table? Uh, and, and it, it, you almost never say it's to get victory points. Like, you always portray it as something fun or dramatic. You know, we're here to conquer the world. I'm here to open a spice trade to China in Marco Polo. Uh, I'm here to be the ruler of the galaxy in Cosmic Encounters. Uh, you always have the victory objective. You present that first, and you constantly refer to it. Because players need to know why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, the second thing you want to present is the pieces. You know, what, what are the little bits on this map? What does this represent? Uh, and you don't necessarily have to introduce the rules at this point, but just let everyone know, prepare them for the fact that you're going to be showing them this and that and this piece and that unit. Uh, and then the third thing you want to teach them is the systems. How do those pieces interact? And it's almost like grammar in that you are communicating an idea. That's the victory objective. You have nouns... Those go into the sentence, and then you have verbs. So you present the idea, you present the nouns, then you present the verbs. Uh, And I feel if you break down most games that way, that's a good way to communicate it. And then finally, one thing I would recommend, and we stumbled across this on on accident, it's always super helpful to have some kind of visual aid uh, in the form, and a lot of games will have little player charts that you can hand out, and for the most part, they're organized terribly, they have tiny print, um, they're maybe not worded very clearly, they're maybe not organized very well. Uh, I always recommend 
making some kind of basic outline of turn order or a couple of crucial rules, just writing it in big print on a piece of paper and sticking it on the wall with tape. Uh, it's always nice that players have some kind of framework that they can glance at and use that as a context to fit things in either the turn order to remind themselves of an important rule. And I want to um, point out that Tom actually practices what he preaches because when he came uh, to visit and he was teaching me and a friend uh, of mine a game we were going to play three-player, uh, the first thing he did was he opened the box and then he had the, a piece of paper right on top of it and it, it basically got a piece of tape and st- he already had a chart, already set up that I'm sure that he had used to teach the game many times before, but uh, it was extremely helpful. So I think that that's, if you put in that little bit of extra time and you, you, of course you have to know the game, but if you put in that extra time to make these extra uh, visual aids, it's really, really uh, beneficial to people understanding. And that's a lot of what it comes down to. If you want to play board games, there's a lot of great ones out there. If you want to get your friends on board, there's a lot of great ways to get them involved, but it does take some work and some commitment, and you obviously have to care enough about trying to do it to do some some of this extra work, extra work and to be a cheerleader for it. Um, uh, so... That said, we've recommended our games. We, we've told you about a few of them that we think maybe aren't that great. Uh, how does someone get these games? So, uh, Bruce, do I just go to Walmart and like ask someone in the vest, hey, where, where can <laughs> I pick up vest. a copy of, of Lord of the Rings, The Confrontation? Oh, you, no, you would have, no, so there you would have to say, uh, where's the, where are the hidden information games? Otherwise, it could send you to, to worker placement, and then you'll never find it, right? I'm, you don't want that, yeah, right? I'm right actually now. pretty sure at, at Walmart they do refer to it as Hobbit Stratego. <laughs> That's their shorthand, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so the, the first place I would obviously go is if you can, and if you play, you know, if you end up playing at a, uh, at a game store in the neighborhood, uh, buy a game from them once in a while, because that's basically how they pay for that space that they have. However, if you are not playing at a game store and you want to get things absolutely uh, super cheaply, you can do it a couple ways. You can get them um, from a number of different uh, online retailers. Uh, you can also get them from the, um, from the companies themselves. Uh, you can also go to BoardGameGeek, and you can actually often pick up very much discounted copies of games yeah, that, yeah. that are, you know, partially used. Some, maybe somebody punched out the counters. Maybe they didn't even punch out the counters. Maybe they just took off the shrink wrap. They opened the box. They said, ah, I don't really need this. And then they, uh, they just put it away. And then, so if, you know, if you were looking to get something sort of on the, on the cheap, I've had very, very good luck getting things dirt cheap, uh, that I wasn't sure that I really, you know, I wanted to check them out, but I was certainly wasn't going to pay, uh, for a game that I might not, and some of them I didn't like, and I passed them on, and uh, was able to sell them dirt cheap as well. Yeah, there are a lot of guys like us who buy a lot of games and then maybe play it once, and we're like, eh, not for me, and I, then just resell it. Yep. So you, you can find that on Board Game Geek. Uh, Tony, you live in uh, New York, where I presume your your apartment's the size of a broom closet. Correct. What advice do you have? for people who want a game library but don't maybe have a whole closet or room to to devote to it? Uh, I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, You're going to want good shelving, and um, there's this wonderful, inexpensive, uh, high-quality, heavy-duty plastic shelving unit uh, that Sterilite makes. Um, and I had two of them in Los Angeles, and I sold them. Fortunately, I didn't give them away, or I'd be heartbroken. I, I did sell them for almost what I paid for them uh, before I moved. 
and I've been trying to uh, track down replacements here in New York, and uh, they seem to have either stopped making them or they're between production or something. They're unobtainable on Amazon, which is where I bought them before. Target supposedly carries them, but the Target here doesn't have them. Uh, but if you can find those Sterilite, they're four-shelf units uh, with solid-shelf material, not like a weird little grid with hollow spaces, uh, don't buy them yet because I want to buy them. Uh, fortunately, <laughs> this podcast is, uh, isn't coming out till February, so hopefully I'll have scored mine uh, by the time you hear this. But those are, are great. Um, there's other similar things that you can get. I think that's, that's crucial uh, but again, you will need, you know, even you'll even need space for those those shelving units. You'll need um, you'll need something uh, in a closet. Fortunately, I have a huge closet here, which would be perfect if I could only get my hands on those things. I have a friend, uh, Stephen, who who uh, collects uh, video games, and he lives here in New York City as well. And he's had a longstanding rule. I actually don't know if he still has this rule because his job now probably requires that he has a, a lot more games than he once did, but. He uh, he had one gaming shelf, and it was small. And in fairness, it was for video games, which take up a DVD case worth of space, if anything. Many of them now are downloadable. Um, but his rule was that that, that shelf, it might have been two shelves, that was his game collection. And if it was full and he wanted to get another game, he would have to get rid of a game. Um, and with board games, I think space is at even more of a premium, and that can be a, a useful rule to uh, to impose on oneself. And, and also price. I mean, board games are, whether we like it or not, it's not you're not going to find many games that are like $14 on Steam. Uh, board games require generally more of a financial outlay. Uh, yeah. and, and I would encourage, too, don't feel like you need to have a large game library. I think it's more important to have a varied game library. Yeah. Uh, have a couple of things for different kinds of groups. Um, and I think with that in mind, you can get by with having a dozen board games, and you can satisfy any kind of gaming group relatively easily, yep. I think. I yeah. So, All right, well, there you go. We hope... Uh, we mainly hope we have won you over because we want more people with whom to play board games. So ultimately, this was a very selfish podcast on our part, uh, and uh, we hope it worked for you. So uh, Bruce, Tony, thank you guys very much uh, for joining me. I also have a real quick rule. When I play board games, from playing real-time strategy games, mm -hmm. when you have a little mini-map in the corner, mm -hmm. uh, the traditional coloring in the mini-map for friendly units and enemy units is your friendly units are blue, the enemy units are red. So anytime I play a board game, I'm blue, and whoever is the biggest threat, they are red. Now, they don't often know this, because a lot of times I'll just start a game and say, okay, I'm blue, you're red, you're green, you're yellow. Interesting. Uh, the problem is, if I were to ever play, and apparently I've done this before, I didn't remember, if I were to ever play a game with Bruce and Tony, I'm not sure which one of you I would force to be red. It became uh, a real point of pride for me in, in games to repeatedly get the red uh, pieces and then, but every so often, some uh, another player. We have a friend Kyle who would show uh, up, yeah. and he would typically get the red ones, and then I would be very yeah. upset. I mean, I'm not saying it was unjustified. He he deserved those red pieces. He's a machine. Yeah, he's a machine. Yeah. Well, then so you could he, use uh, that, Tony. You could use that to kind of like sneak in behind, right? You just all he's Kyle's just distracting Tom, and then you just kind of sneak in there and win. There's there's no sneaking with Kyle. <laughs> Kyle Kyle will catch on to anything. Uh, yeah. yeah so uh, yeah. Okay. All right, well, thank you guys so much. Appreciate uh, the listeners. Uh, we'll be back next week with, uh, with an interview, so I hope you'll join me for that. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see everyone next week. In the game of love, it takes all you got. Just